Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, once again, I have Chris and Brian, the uh, Journey to Venus cyclist as panelist tonight, in addition to the return of our friend from the Netherlands, Dark Dancer. Um, hello, everybody. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's good to once again have you guys on the show. Um, got a lot of good comments about your um, input before, so I decided I'd ask you again. Right on. Let's do it. Nice to hear that. <laughs> good. All right. Well, um, tonight we're going to be going over chapters 8 and 9. It seems that we managed to get two chapters in in every show. Oops. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, as I was saying, it seems that we managed to get through two chapters at once, uh, which I'm pretty happy with. Um, it's a, you know pretty decent to have one chapter an hour. And um, basically, um, tonight we'll be going over all of that. Now, as I have no idea whether or not we have new listeners, if uh, uh, Chris and Brian, if you can introduce yourselves again. Right now? Yeah, right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> hi. <laughs> oh, we were listening. Can you turn that off? Sorry, we're getting feedback. Um, so, hi, I'm Chris, and I rode a bicycle to Venus, Florida, and we are down here in Venus helping Jacques and Roxanne around the uh, research center grounds with all their, all the things we're capable of doing. That's what we're doing. So that's my story at the moment. Over to Brian. Uh, hi, I'm Brian. I'm one of the other guys that rode a bike down here to the wonderful world of Venus, Florida. Um, and we've been here for about seven weeks now, just helping out with all the ins and outs and trying to get this project one step further and so now we're here and a dark dancer well i'm a dark dancer i'm from the netherlands and uh, i'm currently hearing an echo of the uh yeah you need to pause the radio broadcast and because you'll still hear us just on the phone call all right that's pretty hard one second and so now we're here and a dark dancer this means we get more of chris and brian you know <laughs> hey, that's hey. always a positive thing. <laughs> yeah, we won't <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, ap- Apologies to the listeners there. Uh, I'm Dark Dancer. I'm from the Netherlands, and I'm uh, part of the Dutch chapter of the Zeitgeist Movement, and I'm pretty happy to be back on the show again. Excellent. We're happy to have you. Well, um, without further ado, um, other than actually I wanted to go over just um, you know, once again to say thank you to everybody for tuning in to V-Radio. I really appreciate the listenership, and you know, please feel free to um, you know pass the links around to these shows. I want to remind all the listeners that I make an ongoing post that is basically a locked and sticky thread on the on the Zeitgeist forums in the Venus Project section called V Radio Archives, and there you can go and find a convenient link to every one of the shows, um, including some that I co-hosted or actually like guest starred <laughs> starred on. Um, on Thunder's show. Uh, I also wanted to take this moment to plug that I will be on a different show called Liberty Unleashed coming this Friday. Um, I actually used to work with these people back when I was on the Ron Paul, uh, in the Ron Paul movement, um, so they're very libertarian, and uh, it seems as though we're going to have a bit of a debate on free market laissez-faire capitalism versus the Venus Project. So I hope that all of you will tune that in. Um, you can find Liberty Unleashed here on Blog Talk Radio. And um, in addition to that, once again, uh, V-Radio is still accepting donations. Thanks to your donations last month, and I'm not kidding, quite literally, thanks to your donations last month, I 
still have the ability to get on the air. Um, this month is going to be tough as well. So um, you can find the donation widget on my MySpace, which should be easy to find here on Blog Talk Radio. Um, I believe there's a widget for it here on Blog Talk as well. I just wouldn't be able to tell you where to find it. Um, in addition to that, on my MySpace, there's also a widget that will allow you to listen to my archive shows easily. And um, in, uh, one more announcement that I'll bring up is, once again, that VTV is finally up and running, uh, i.e. Zeitgeist VTV. Uh, we're using a Justin TV channel, and it, I found out that I was wrong previously that there actually will be archives of previous VTV shows, provided that I set up an actual event for them, and it plays the um, documentary that I had played in segments, kind of about the size of a YouTube video, but the quality is actually really good. Um, just you know, There's actually a benefit to the, the VTV aspect that's very important, is that the more people who tune in to VTV, um, the more people, yeah, basically the higher rating that channel gets. Now during Ron, the Ron Paul movement, okay, we were able to get a lot of new people who would just wander into our Justin TV channel. Um, you can still see the channel there. It's called Ron Paul TV. It's actually how I got involved in all this political stuff because um, I was a Ron, you know, Ron Paul TV host. And we would have people who would just wander in just because we happen to have a lot of people. People basically see the viewer count in the Justin TV network and they go, hey, that, that channel's got a lot of viewers. Let me go check it out. Um, and through that, actually, I was playing another documentary about Hugo Chavez, and we got a Spanish-speaking fellow who came into the channel and wanted to know what we were about. And we ended up, thankfully, I had two Spanish-speaking uh, viewers at the time who helped him understand what we were doing, and he linked them to the, the Spanish subtitled version of Zeitgeist Addendum. So this is a powerful tool that will allow us to bring this information to more people. And that's why I urge you, if you can make it, you know, make time for it. I always post when VTV is going to be on and what we're going to be watching um, on the uh, Zeitgeist forums. I also have a VTV archives um, forum post for the same purpose. So the last uh, documentary was called No End in Sight. It made a lot of, basically detailed very heavily the various things that it seems like the government is almost doing intentionally wrong over in Iraq had a lot of very high-profile interviews, including um, aides to Colin Powell, uh, a lot of people who were working in government in Iraq at the time who basically spilled the beans about just how stupid things really went down over there. So um, with all that said, um, I'm ready to get started with the show today. Um, once again, thank you for listening to V Radio. And we are now moving on to Chapter 8. Uh, those are my panelists. If you can mute yourselves, it makes the sound quality a little better. Just make sure you can unmute in time when, the, when I'm finished with the chapter. So for any of you who are reading along with us, um, oh, that's one more important thing. This is actually from Roxanne. Don't buy, uh, this is the reason you'll notice, I stopped linking uh, the best that money can't buy and the video Future by Design on my show using the Amazon box. Because Amazon.com is selling this book for like $100, and it's absurd. If you want to buy this book, buy it directly from Jacques and Roxanne. Um, they actually removed their book from Amazon for this reason. And in addition to that, they don't really get very much of a kickback when somebody buys it that way. So make sure that you go to VenusProject.com to get your book when you want to buy the best that money can't buy. And I strongly recommend it. Honestly, just, just buy everything directly from their site. That's the best way to go. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, 
The other book that I do keep up there, uh, Addicted to War, which I highly recommend to anybody who wants to understand just how much the monetary system has to do with war, you can get that for a decent price on um, Amazon, even just for a couple bucks. It's well worth it, and it's a very easy way to communicate the problem to people um, of all ages, really. Um, I mean, you could hand it to a 12-year-old, and they'd figure it out. So in any case, uh, without, as I said, without further ado, let's go on to Chapter 8, The Next Phase of Evolution, Machine Intelligence. Welcome to the age of automation and AI. Automation is a major part of our lives. By replacing human labor and intelligence with machines, we achieve a standard of living unknown even to royalty in past times. Automation and its recent partner CyberNation, or the wedding of the computer to production, has unleashed an outflow of goods and services never before experienced. The next step underway now adds artificial intelligence, AI, computer programming that simulates human decision-making and hypothesis testing, along with self-correction. AI redesigns mechanical and electronic systems to simulate and improve upon human performance. As exciting as these developments are, they are only the beginning. The way we conduct human affairs is being challenged by the use of computers. The Internet and the World Wide Web are providing the groundwork for the evolution, are providing the groundwork for the evolution of a new social direction in human interaction bringing together vast stores of information in many different disciplines. From the comfort of our homes, schools, offices, and libraries, we are now able to instantly access a world of information on the World Wide Web, interacting with people throughout the world. Electronic mail and messaging systems reach Australia as quickly as the office next door. This extremely rapid and easy communication process changes radically how we relate to each other and how we conduct business. Information flows across the net, ignoring customs, borders, and international agreements. To those wedded to the control of information, these are terrifying times. Developments in nanotechnology and replication offer humanity the opportunity to command its destiny to a degree never before achieved. We can overcome scarcity once and for all and virtually eliminate poverty, unnecessary human suffering, deprivation, and perhaps even the need for work. Where will this lead us? Will human beings eventually be replaced by the efficiency of machines? What will we do? How will we make a living? As some fear, will machines enhanced with artificial intelligence eventually take over? Will people become obsolete? In this chapter, we probe the possibilities of the future of automation, its promise, and its dangers. Keep in mind that these mechanical children can so far do only what we humans program them to do. For all their sophistication, they have none of our ambitions or failings, nor are they likely to. It is therefore our decision whether we use them to evaluate people everywhere, or to, I'm sorry, to elevate people everywhere, or to serve our fears, prejudices, and power-seeking. Therein lies our future, and the future of our technology. For the first time in history, we have the information necessary to take charge of our own destiny. We are fully responsible for the decisions we make and their consequences. Do we have the capacity, the will, and the intelligence to clearly think out and implement changes for our overall benefit, or will we wait for some catastrophic event to direct the future? For society to improve the quality of life for everyone, I'm sorry, for people, it must overcome the rigidity of the present. Rigidity. Science and technology undergo continuous modification and revision, but social customs, values, and more tend to remain fairly static. 
If the outmoded, unquestioning, and emotion-driven methods used by our government and economic systems today had been applied to the sciences, we would have made very little technological progress. The greatest fear have I'm sorry, the greatest fear people have come about coming age of, uh, about the coming age of cybernation is that millions will be left behind, unable to adjust to or understand the way of the neutral new culture operates. In fact, some people do fall behind or are slow to catch up during times of change. Most of us do not even understand the science and technology behind the products we already use. Fewer and fewer and fewer of us work on our own cars. Not many people repair their own computers, refrigerators, or TVs. We don't have the training, the tools, or the time to do so. The one interesting aspect of emerging technologies is that you do not need understanding to use it. The human interface portion is so basic that former third world nations have easily made the jump from horse-drawn plows to computers, and many are now leading developers of software. The history of invention includes all systems that enabled human beings to improve communication beyond the, fir beyond the first primitive grunts. Books, radio, television, and all other forms of human communication extend our relationship to others and added to our range of consciousness. The computer, like all other inventions, serves as an extension of human consciousness, a brain outside of our bodies, yet connected to our nervous system, the world, and eventually the stars. The developments of the computer World Wide Web and the Internet have liberated users from many of the limitations imposed on them by governments. It is no longer easy for nations to shield their citizens from controversial ideas. Although we are at the early stages of the Internet, a threat to this new unintended liberator is the, is the attempt to control the input and output of information. Some already seek limitations on material regarded, subjecti uh, regarded subjectively as being objectionable. Once established, such control may be gradually extended to all areas that might threaten an existing power structure. The conditions that perpetuate these threats may not be a direct conspiracy, but the result of thousands of self-appointed guardians of the status quo. Eventually, all social systems must extend beyond current boundaries and ethnic groups to achieve a link-up in order to arrive at a long-term, sustainable future for generations to come. Soon, most people will realize that a cybernated society may benefit humanity more than any other development in history. Here, we do not contemplate the use of technology to advance the interests of transitional corporations, but to organize a global economy based on human rights and basic needs. This new world of humans plus computer-generated solutions can provide us with global strategies that constitute a joint venture in problem-solving for the benefit of all Earth's inhabitants. Automated machines today can perform almost any task that humans can. While we have only two hands, machines have been designed that far exceed the manipulative ability of any humans. As far back as 1961, U.S. industries announced that they had developed the first general-purpose automation machine at, the, at a price of around $2,500. It was called the Transf Robot. Its swinging arm and hand were infinitely superior to any human arm or hand. It never got tired, and the electronic brain guiding it was not prone to in inattention. It picked things up and put them down within the accuracy of two thousandths of an inch. In 1961, the West Clocks Company of LaSalle, Illinois, used the transfer robot to oil clock assemblies as they sped by on a conveyor belt. It oiled eight precision bearings a second. Interestingly, the same year, a U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Technology and Automation observed that Considering the extent of automation, the amount of goods and services required by the entire country could be provided by 
10% of the workforce that existed at the time. 90% of the workforce no longer provided critical goods and products. Essentially, then, as long, as 19, as long ago as 1961, 90% of the workforce toiled for non-essential goods and services. So-called service industries work related to controlling and managing money, replacing, I'm sorry, replaced producing food and clothing. The advent of cybernation can be regarded as the real emancipation proclamation for humankind if used humanely and intelligently. Cybernation could enable the highest conceivable standard of living with practically no labor. It could free people for the first time from a highly structured and outwardly imposed routine of repetitive day-by-day -day activity. It could permit one to actually live the Greek concept of leisure, where slaves did the work and citizens cultivated their minds. The difference is that in the future, each of us will command more than a million slaves, but they will be mechanical and electrical slaves. It will forever end the degrading use of human, one human being to do against their will the work of another. Perhaps the greatest aid for enhancing the survival chances of the human race is the electronic computer and artificial intelligence, which may well save the human race from its own shortcomings. As we begin to plan for a new human society, we need to foster common values about clean air, water, and other elements of self-sustenance. These, along with a complete inventory of Earth's resources, will form the basis for, for a holistic approach to cybernated decision-making. Any changes recommended by cybernated systems can also provide information on the, on the effects that innovative systems will have holistically on the entire system. This is not a project for the distant future. Some of this work is already underway. The father of cybernation, Dr. Robert Weiner, had this to say about the emerging age of non-human work. It is a degradation to a human being to chain them to an oar and use them as a source of power, but it is also an equal degradation to assign them to purely repetitive tasks in a factory which demands less than the millionth of their brain power. What dreams, what goals will we be able to achieve when we have the time to pursue them? Demise of the monetary system. Government and industry will continue to assign more and more responsibility for decision-making to intelligent machines. Today's machines handle trillions of bits of information per second, far more than any number of industrial or political decision-makers can handle. They can also constantly process and update information. The other side of this trend is that people will be replaced so that they will no longer have the purchasing power needed to sustain a monetary system that burdens the population and government with insurmountable debt. As the old monetary system displaces more and more people with automation, they will cease to respect the authority of industry. The time-honored patterns of living in industrial countries where people balance work and family will become impossible for the majority as they are displaced by automation. When automation and cybernation reach their fullest potential, not only industrial workers, but also most professionals will be replaced. It may surprise people when lifelike computer-generated images replace actors, entertainers, and television announcers. The movie Final Fantasy, released in 2001, featured an entirely computer-generated cast. Even the most visionary writers and futurists of the 20th century had, would have had difficulty accepting the possibility of robots replacing surgeons, engineers, top management, airline pilots, and other professionals. It is not unthinkable that machines may one day write novels or poems, compose music, and eventually replace humans in government and in the management of world affairs. This is not about the morality and ethics of human participation, but a straightforward description of future technological trends. Nature does not subscribe to human interpretations of good or evil, 
or hang on to traits or species that are no longer useful. Nature operates without any concern for previous living plants and organisms, many of which have been superseded again and again. There are no permanent structures in nature, although many of us would like to believe otherwise, especially when it comes to our own species. Although future technical changes are far beyond anything we can imagine today, the most profound effects would not be in new technologies themselves, but rather in how we conduct our lives and manage our social institutions. As we move toward a cybernated world, most people will no longer be needed to manage and operate this emerging civilization. The world's fragmented social systems will be supported by a network of computerized centers and operations. Today, computers and AI are not able to advise management about the best ways to maintain a competitive edge. Information about other corporate practices often is not known. In order for industries to maintain their competitive edge, they cannot share their processes, production techniques, or business plans. Even if they did, a railway strike could stop their shipping. Predictability is often outside of their control. It is difficult to plan unless a great many variables are controlled. Eventually, interleaked cyber centers will coordinate service industries, transportation systems, public health care, and education with the latest data and the state of the world economy. Interdisciplinary teams of systems engineers, computer programmers, systems and analysts researchers, analysts and researchers, and the like would super, could supervise, manage, and analyze the effectiveness of the flow of goods and services. Such a world linked together by communication networks and continuous flow lines of information and services will provide a much higher standard of living to all people. Although today, automation and AI applied in a monetary world economy often results in much higher standard of living, it is only for a relatively small number of people. The advantages of newer technologies are not yet available to everyone. Today, most see computers as simply another clever addition to technology. Yet this technology is now evolving into the greatest force for social change we have yet encountered, allowing us an ever-widening range of decision-making in government, medicine, and industry. Indications are that AI will result in more significant changes than did any previous breakthrough or revolution. As early as 1971, a single space satellite sent back to Earth 400 miles of tape data that would take five competent analysts about 500 years to decipher and convert into useful information. We are approaching a time when human intelligence alone will be incapable of managing a highly advanced society. Existing technologies are rapidly exceeding the human capacity to absorb and process information. The human mind is far too slow and simplistic to handle the upcoming information surge. We have neither the training nor the capability to handle the millions of bits of information per, se per second necessary to efficiently manage the new advances. That is why we urgently advocate a society that utilizes cybernetics not merely as a system of tabulation and measurement, but as a way to process vital information and channel it for the benefit of all humankind. Only our most capable computers can store and sort through the data necessary to arrive at equitable and sustainable analysis and decisions about the development and distribution of resources on a global scale. In the cybernated global economy, mega machines directed by AI will evacuate canals, I'm sorry, excavate canals, dig tunnels and construct bridges, viaducts and dams. The construction will be based on designs that take account of, that take account of human and animal migrations and ecology without the necessity of human involvement. Human participation will be in the form of selecting the desired ends. Human labor would no longer be required. In this society, construction techniques would be vastly different from those employed today. 
Self-erecting structures would prove most expedient and efficient in the construction of industrial plants, bridges, buildings, and eventually the entire global infrastructure. This would not create cookie-cutter cities. The notion that a large-scale overhaul planning, uh, overall planning requires mass uniformity in its is correct. I'm going to say that again because I didn't say it very clear. This would not create cookie-cutter cities. The notion that large-scale overall planning requires mass uniformity is incorrect. Cities would require less material, save time and energy, and yet be flexible. They would allow for innovative changes while maintaining the highest quality possible, but, but still fitting in with the local ecology, both human and environmental. Utilizing technology is, in this way would enable a global society to achieve social advancement and worldwide reconstruction in the shortest time possible. Eventually, factories will be designed by robots, for robots. The cybernated systems will be self-programming by using environmental feedback. Machines can be self-replicating and improve their operational range while at the same time repairing themselves and updating their own circuitry. Since the computer and, computers and systems would be continuously self-monitoring, parts could be supplied and installed well in advance of anywhere. The machines could operate continuously except when conducting their own maintenance and repair. In a resource-based economy, all the work of robots would be directed toward the well-being of humans. In such a society, monitoring of people by machines would serve no useful purpose except when deliberate human feedback was needed. As artificial intelligence develops, machines will be assigned complex decision-making tasks in industrial, military, and governmental affairs. This would not imply a takeover by machines. Instead, it would be a gradual transfer of decision-making processes to machine intelligence as the next phase of social evolution. Automated control could come into being when sensors that, in, that monitor the resources of the Earth are installed in every conceivable location, linked through a worldwide network of computers. Far from policing human behavior, these benign monitors would only allow us to arrive at the most appropriate decisions for humans and in the environment. I must state again that monitoring personal behavior will be neither necessary nor desirable. Artificial intelligence is already applied by industry in areas like monitoring weather patterns by satellite, production control, and automation. With further development of computerized systems, environmental sensors and extensors can provide feedback to help us carefully determine successive stages and develop analytical and decision-making tools. The effectiveness of such computerized systems would depend on the number of sensors they were equipped with. We must include unforeseen variables in the environment, such as fire, flood, hurricanes, and earthquakes, and other natural and man-made disasters. An example of the tremendous potential of cybernated sensing systems may be seen in a hotel of the future. In the rare event of a fire, an audiovisual alarm instantly appears on the room's TV screen. The screen would display a 3D image and audio message describing the route to take to avoid the fire. When exiting the building, an illuminated line would show the way out. Robotic machines will undergo radical changes in their physical appearance and performance as they evolve. They will behave more like living systems and be capable of making appropriate decisions within their sphere of operation. In the event of threats or dangers to humans, they will act on our behalf. To maximize reliability and minimize failure, all computers can be programmed with a degree of flexibility and the ability to shut down in case of failure of one of their parts. It is irrational to fear machines in this benign role. Some people think there is too much emphasis on technology in this proposal. In fact, it is concern for humanity that inspires me to put forth these ideas about the redesign of a culture and to apply the best science 
we should be, I'm sorry, the best science and technology to enhance the lives of everyone. It is not automated technology or machines we should be wary of, but rather the abuse and misuse of technology by selfish interests. We can build rockets to explore outer space and enhance the quality of life on Earth, or we can use them to destroy other nations. It is people who decide what ends inanimate machines will serve. The aim of this social design is to apply advanced technology to produce abundance and improve the quality of life for all. To reach decisions, intelligent people acquire information from appropriate sources and behave accordingly. Unfortunately, in pursuing advantage, humans acquire and route information for personal and corporate gain. Cybernated systems programmed for common concerns will prevent unchecked executive authority or abuses of power. In a resource-based cybernated system, decisions are based on direct environmental, human, and industrial feedback from cities, factories, warehouses, distribution facilities, and transportation networks. The decisions are appropriate to the greater needs of society and not to corporate interests. While many people feel uncomfortable about machines making decisions, everyone demands a weighing scale to be used when they purchase a quantifiable goods. To preclude a power failure in a hospital, people expect backup emergency generators that automatically switch on with the least amount of inconvenience to staff and patients. We are so used to machines making decisions about climate control, directing traffic lights, answering our phones, forwarding our messages, managing our calendars, and the like, we no longer consider them remarkable. Today, people want and expect many aspects of modern life to be handled seamlessly and invisibly by so-called intelligent machine, machine decisions. Few, few people think about or know how machines make decisions. When additional machine use is proposed, they project their own personal agendas and emotions into the machine design. While some fear machines, there has never been a single deliberate act or plan by machines to hurt anyone. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said of human beings. Humans, not machines, use nerve gas and missiles to destroy. Even automobile accidents are mostly caused by human beings rather than by mechanical failures, and most mechanical failures can be traced back to human error. It is easy to understand how we might accept computer decisions when we consider possibilities such as this. A man leaving the top down in his convertible feels a few raindrops and must pull over to raise the top. It would be more convenient to have a system of sensors in the car that would raise the top automatically when rain begins. One sensor detects the raindrops and another scans the car to ensure no fingers or pets will be injured by the mechanism automatically putting, down, putting up the top and side windows. This and much more is technically feasible. The question is, how smart do you wish your car to be? Another example, designed and patterned by the author, is a light white net installed at the bottom of a swimming pool. If a child falls into the pool, the net is activated to come up from the bottom of the pool, saving the child when the parents or guardians are inattentive. When no one is using the pool, the net stays at the surface. The net requires no human decision. The net's computer reacts to feedback from the environment. Humans will still be relevant in this new society because they are the ones these machines are designed for. Only in a cybernated world can decisions be based on the full range of data available without interference from human ego or self-interest. This could eventually provide us with the best solutions to most social problems. The majority of problems in computerized systems come from flawed human intervention. Computers will eventually be capable of designing their own programs, improving and repairing their own circuitry, and updating information relevant to social needs. 
Almost all life forms of the past, including plants, animals, and even humanoid forms, have been replaced during the process of evolution. There are no permanent structures in nature. The assumption that the human being is the final product of evolution is based upon a narrow self-centered projection. The human being is not a separate self-sufficient entity. We are integrated into and dependent on nature to survive. It is arrogant and unrealistic for us to believe that man is the final product of evolution. More and more we see the merging of human ingenuity with machine intelligence. How many have been helped by our artificial limbs, joints, hearts, skin, and so forth? How much pure information, unhampered by human frailties, is processed by computers every day? The next stage of evolution most surely be, will most surely be the merging of biological systems with man-made systems. It takes millions of years for organisms to evolve and additional thousands of years for them to shed vestigial organs. The human increased in size and in complexity due to the many new, new convolutions in its neuro, neuronal development. <laughs> Sorry if I mis mispronounced that. The enlargement of the brain was accompanied by a corresponding increase in the capacity for associative memory. The development of electronic systems required a different evolution. Early computers were huge room-sized fixtures, but now information storage ability keeps increasing while the hardware occupies less and less space. Another major difference in technology is that non-functioning parts are eliminated or replaced immediately. In human systems, old ideas may be retained far beyond their usefulness and new ideas shunned. In artificial intelligence and computerized systems, information is updated rapidly, appropriately, and constantly. Today, it takes years to transfer acquired knowledge to another person, whereas in computerized systems, information can be transferred instantaneously to an entire global network. Most of us cling tenaciously to old habits of thought, but technological progress has little use for custom and tradition. Human systems are subject to neural lag and tend to revert to the familiar. Neural lag may be defined as the tendency to resist new and appropriate associative patterns in favor of old, familiar ones. For example, during the early stage, stages of automotive development, a statue of a horse's head was mounted on the hood, and the rear of the car retained a coachman's seat. If neural lag had prevailed in electronics, the industry would have failed to achieve its many technological innovations. To remain at the forefront of technology, one must update one's methods, discard outdated technology, and examine new paradigms. Our present social design doesn't keep up with the rate of change required to take advantage of the accelerated pace of information and innovation. The person of today thinks in terms of having to get a job in order to support himself and his family. With the limitless possibilities of our technology today, this could be considered an example of neural lag. The adherence, adherence sorry, to a, mental, a mentality of scarcity is another. No matter how strong our fear or resentment of social cybernation, the process is already underway. In all branches of industry, medicine, agriculture, and technology, computers are being assigned the role of decision-making. As we outgrow the need for human participation, whether in the military, the marketplace, or eventually government, more and more tasks will be assigned to artificial intelligence. Although politicians, decision-makers, educators, humanists, and the literary community will probably resist cybernation, the greatest resistance will come from the general public, attuned as they've been to being directed by other humans for thousands of years. But cybernation will prevail. As an old Chinese proverb says, 
The dogs may howl at the moon, but the moon will continue on its honorable journey. Machine emotions in a cybernated society. Let us look at the matter of emotions in machines. Imagine an automobile with computerized emotions linked to built-in feedback mechanisms. This car has a pendulum under the hood, and when an abrupt turn is made, it is prompted to respond via its speaker system. What are you trying to do? Destroy the car and everyone in it? Where did you learn to drive? You have, no, have you no regard for others? Worse yet, what if the car suddenly decided it didn't like you in the middle of an abrupt turn? Of course, this is preposterous. But how often does such, a, such an approach fail when we use it to modify the behavior of others? What purpose would emotion serve if incorporated into the design of intelligent machines? Machines have no emotions. They do not feel ambition, love, or hate. They do not seek power over people, nor do they harbor any repressed desires to harm or enslave anyone. They won't make demands on their users or seek revenge if misused. They will not hold a grudge, complain, or manifest guile and deceit. These are human traits. With no understanding of a sensitivity of, of, our, of, of or sensitivity to human emotions, such as love and trust, Machines guide aircraft, ships, and spacecraft to their destinations and make decisions about how to avoid troublesome weather. With no concept of charity, machines provide an abundance of food and preserve it by refrigeration. They heat and cool our homes. They sound alarms in the event of a fire and warn us when hurricanes and tornadoes threaten. They order parts from machines before they wear out. Although they do not hold the hand of a distressed person, they warn us about toxic gases in the environment. Perhaps human emotions would be the only attribute, if given a choice, which machine technology could reject, would reject outright. When one thinks about it, the fact that machines have no emotions may in some ways make them superior to human systems. This appears to be the case when the task requires immediate response and dispassionate weighing of options. I apologize for the sounds of my kids in the background. We could put pressure sensors in tires so that they maintain required pressure with a built-in pump. We could program them to slow down automatically to 15 miles per hour when the monitors detect a school zone. If there were a child or a pet behind the car when backing up, the car would automatically stop. It makes more sense to design built-in standards of performance than to, that operate the car rather than try to alter the behavior of the driver with verbal abuse or stern admonitions. Sorry about that. I'll go back to here. It makes more sense to design built-in standards of performance to operate the car rather than try to alter the behavior of the driver with verbal abuse or stern admonitions. The same system could be applied to all aspects of the electrical, mechanical, and computerized cybernated world of the future, including human communication. It is not a matter of the machine caring about the results of its actions. It is a matter of designing the function of safety into the machine. It is not emotions that machines need, but built-in responsibility to the humans they serve. What we require of them is to act intelligently with respect to human welfare and to make appropriate responses to a wide range of situations. If all of this could be accomplished without emotions, does this not raise some interesting questions about a number of human emotions? Nanotechnology to come. Nanotechnology will eventually control and direct the building of molecular structures, atom by atom, into any molecular configuration we desire. By such, a process, we will be able, by such a process, we will be able to rearrange matter and eliminate shortages forever. 
With sophisticated technologies like atomic and molecular replication, we might be able to re-engineer natural processes with advanced robotic manipulators that utilize phase array to um, teletactile communication. Phase array is the control manipulation of light to generate three-dimensional images that appear solid. Teletactile is the ability to impart the sensation of, solidly, of solidity and touch to a merely transmitted object. This advanced form of telecommunication will create a virtual simulation one can see, feel, hear, smell, and touch. Basically what he's talking about is the same thing as the holodeck uh, in Star Trek, just an FYI. Although such instantaneous technologies may be difficult to comprehend today, it is just an extension of current technologies and similar to the way color television images are transmitted to any part of the world today. The difference is that the image and sound will be transmitted three-dimensionally and feel solid to the touch. The next step involves directly replicating an object rather than merely simulating it. On Earth, this might be accomplished instantaneously and can eventually eliminating, eliminate having to transport objects from place to place. Beyond Earth, it could be the future transport system from one planet or galaxy to another. Space transportation, though requiring speeds inconceivable by present standards, would likely not be instantaneous because it takes time even to transmit information. As nanotechnology advances, machines could have a transmorphic capability, being able to change shape to the most efficient form to accomplish any given task. Such machines could constantly assess conditions as they perform tasks and morph into a more appropriate configuration as necessary. To understand this process, imagine evolution as a series of rapid successions. Unlike the millions of years it takes to accomplish organic changes, machines, as described above, could instantaneously rearrange their molecular structures to best serve human needs. Of course, such machines will not look like conventional machines any more than a microchip looks like a phonograph record. They would be as different from our present machines as humans differ from primordial life forms. Today, living systems conform to the world by natural process, or they perish. In the future, machine systems will adjust the world according to the specifications set by an emerging culture, a culture that will, hopefully, be dedicated to universal human and environmental well-being. The downsizing of the gods. AI will eventually supplant antiquated notions about gods and demons. As our own powers increase, there will surely be a corresponding decrease in humankind's tendency to seek answers and solace in religion or superstition. Nature or the gods take thousands of millions of years to accomplish the slow process of evolutionary change. Modern technology can instantly reproduce all the information of recorded history. With advances in nanotechnology, we may someday be able to instantaneously arrange matter into any desired configuration. Reengineering of genetic code may enable us to reduce or eliminate genetic diseases and defects and even reproduce organs, bones, or tissue that is less likely to fail or be subject to disease. Our relationship to the space-time continuum could also be modified. For example, we may be able to travel through time and space without the need for interstellar transport systems and, proje and project human intelligence almost anywhere in the universe. In other words, unknowingly, we are evolving toward the reinvention of our gods. We may even in the future find that we have outgrown them. To those who feel threatened by such concepts, it is not intelligence we must fear, but ignorance. In conclusion, we are at a time when mathematical logic and computers can assist us in unraveling the processes of human thought. 
Our growing understanding will enable us to enhance future computer technology. Existing economic and political structures and processes no longer provide the support needed to keep up with and keep up with and implement changes in technology. The focus on profit, secrecy, and competition runs counter to the possibilities for positive change affordable by the current democratic broadening of technology. The Internet makes possible a spirit of collaboration and open exchange of information. It is time to put a new social and economic structures in place. In time, the computer and social cybernation may be seen as the only means of social management that are entirely free of selfish motivation. This may be the most humane approach to our human dilemmas. We require a global perspective, international cooperation, and planetary planning in terms of available resources. This planning must relate to the carrying capacity of Earth to meet with the needs of all people. This can be best accomplished by using a constantly updated computerized model of our planetary resources in a resource-based economy. Advanced social systems do not require scientists or governments to tell them how to operate. The ultimate decision-making authority represents the expression of all humankind. This vision of applied science can serve the common good, a goal that has eluded human civilization for centuries. Although this revolution will stand largely, I'm sorry, although this revolution will still largely in the future, or is still largely in the future, the possibility of a better life for all other of the inhabitants of the planet will depend ultimately on the choices we make today. Well, that's the end of that chapter. All right, Chris and Brian, hit us up. What did you guys think of that channel or that chapter? Um, I, I loved it, as I love all the other ones. But I just <laughs> find it to be, uh, you know, I think a lot about how it's funny how human beings oftentimes seem to like behave as though we're at the pinnacle of of our creative abilities in terms of technology, you know, when you start talking to people about the the types of advances that can be, like some of the technology we can't implement, it seems people are, are, are so quick to reject ideas like that when, if you look at the patterns of all history, it's consistently been an evolution process of technology. So it's almost like, do, do, you, do you think we're really have nothing else to achieve or accomplish in terms of technological advancement. So, so reading that chapter just made me be like, yeah, I mean, why doesn't everybody just get on board and, and seem to agree that we can continue to make things so much better using technology? It's, never, it's not going to come attack us and kill us and, 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 you know, become smarter than us and become more emotional than us and take us over. I don't understand why that gets in people's heads. I understand... Hollywood tends to put that image out there, but I don't see why it's something simply rejectable by all people. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because I think what it comes down to is, you know, humans don't like the idea, especially in American society, humans don't like this idea of being managed or being controlled. But it's interesting because I've been reading along in the chat rooms, and Pete1983 said it best. He said, you know, we're already being managed. So, yeah, we're not being managed by you know, automated machines that could really improve our lifestyles instead of being managed by corruptible human beings. You know, so it's like we're, we're okay with, with certain things that don't even make logical sense, but when it comes to basing a society on a logical, scientific basis instead of on emotion and corruption and all the things that we're in now, it's like I don't, I don't, I don't get why it's not just a big light that comes on in every 
person's brain, but for some reason there really is this fear of technology. And like Chris said, I think there is this assumption that, oh, you know, nanotechnology, we're 800 years away from that ever being able to be real, you know, and people just say these insane figures that you're like, first of all, how do you even know that? And second, you know, it, it goes back to the same old thing. People said we'd never be able to fly planes, and then the Wright brothers came along. You know, and that that story will be able to be used probably for the rest of humanity because, you know, there will always be naysayers. And the funny thing about that particular story is that we actually have, like, proof that people were flying even before the Wright brothers, that technology was basically lost. Right. Um, Dark Dancer? All right. Uh, well... For first thing, I'd like to say that I I do agree with Chris and uh, Brian. Uh, the thing of this chapter that uh, made me worry is a few things, and um, that's first that it simulates human decision making, which was talked about in the first part of this chapter. And the thing that I was worried about in that statement, particular statement, maybe it's taken out of context, but when it simulates human decision-making, it's also uh, resembling a non-perfect decision because it should improve uh, the human decision-making instead of simulating it. But maybe I'm just being picky on the words there. Uh, furthermore, the chapter, mostly in the first part, um, for me, had a, it had a complete stamp on it, which was technological unemployment. Also something Peter talks about in the Zeitgeist Movement uh, video presentation. Um, it's a worrying thing because a uh, resource-based economy is a great vision and the machine part of this chapter was definitely intriguing and I, I can't put myself into a place that I disagree with Jacques' uh, arguments to uh, be in favor of such uh, advances in technology and the use of technology but the other part that is worrying is that will we be able to catch up with the rate that technological unemployment is uh, well well maybe I should say that in another way the the thing that's worrying me is that technological employment unemployment is occurring on such a fast pace that I am worried that we're able to catch up with the ideology of the Venus project and in time to make a rescue for the technological technological unemployment and also the failure to adjust rapidly uh, for mainly the older people uh, I'm a young guy so the technological advances are pretty easy to grasp for me but especially to the older members of, of our society I think it'll be really hard to adjust to these rapid changes and that makes for a worrying situation as well, because when there's a large part of the population, I don't know how it, is, how it is in America right now, but in the Netherlands, we have a large part of the population which is of a older age than the younger part of the population, and they're really outnumbering us right now. And I don't see them accepting the, the rapid changes that, that quickly. And... Um, I'll make it quick because I know we're uh, low on time. Uh, cybernation as an aid to mankind um, is just a great idea. And one remark to the choice of words in the chapter, I heard uh, a line called the 
called that the slaves. Uh, sorry, the command of slaves, and I thought it was a poor choice of words by Shuck. I know it wasn't the context he was placing it in, but it was a really, really uh, poor choice of words in that part. And for the last part of the chapter, I I like the example of the guided fire escape because the guided fire escape was a perfect example of how technology could aid us in the future when a path was being uh, chosen out for the safest route. Uh, that that really lightened me up because that was really something that could save the lives of a lot of human beings as well as the pool example where the net would save the child and would save many lives that were lost today because of uh, parents lacking the attention they should put into their child. Uh, last part is that uh, machines designing their own programs was also a reference made in this chapter. Uh, I'd like to, maybe you could enlighten more about that subject because uh, in the first part it was more emphasized that machines would be designed with a certain program to aid mankind, but when machines are designing their own programs, I get a double feeling because then it would be more riskier in my opinion. And well, that's all I had to say about this chapter. Well, um, what I wanted to add, oh, hold on a second. Sorry about that. I was hearing myself. Anyway, um, what I would actually, because like this actually came up to my mind when I was uh, listening to them talk and like we were talking about like the people who were freaked out about the idea of machines taking over. Um, Generally, what it amounts to is, is that that's all fiction, and we have a lot of um, hang-ups about it because we watch movies like Terminator and The Matrix, and like just about every time I bring up The Venus Project, I have to deal with somebody else saying, oh, that's a Matrix nightmare, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, just, in fact, like recently I, I've been on the, uh, the Open Source Ecology forums, and a couple of guys there you know, actually referred to it as a Matrix nightmare, and they talked about how we just needed to put in more sweat on our brow in order to get ahead, and... Now, mind you, that does not represent the entire, you know, open source ecology movement by any means. The guy who's in charge of it has been very nice every time I've talked to him. But anyway, um, anything like that is not going to just emerge out of a machine on its own. We're going to have to put it there. Now, when they talk about writing their own programs and how you have fail-safes, it's just like, as always, okay, that you can rewrite your own programs, but overall, you know, generally what happens is that um, the you have to set down a fundamental structure that simply cannot be altered by the machine. It's a very easy um, fail-safe to put in place. It's just like, for example, let me give you an example. Um, you know, I mean, you set up a fail-safe so that your um, email only accepts emails from people who are on your contact list. At that point, you know, the computer is trying to basically decipher, according to the guidelines you give it, which emails you're going to get. And that's essentially how it works. I mean, anything that we put into a system, we can put limitations on. We have full control over anything that a computer does. You know, all of these notions that a machine can become self-aware without us making it self-aware are silly. That's the one component to every one of these movies, actually, that people tend to forget, is that there's this magical thing that supposedly happens that puts a ghost in the machine, so to speak, and then all of a sudden the machine is bad. And people tend to remember that a lot more. I mean, like, when you think about movies like Short Circuit, for example, would be an excellent example of a movie where... You know, a machine got, you know, AI and then became self-aware because it got struck by lightning. Um, you know, there was actually a positive force, and that was because it had a certain moral, you know, background to itself. It learned those things. And that's, and once again, though, it's, it's all fiction. People get so caught up on it 
unfortunately, we define a lot of things by our, you know, by our movies, and the first thing that we go to is fear. You know, people don't want to talk about the fact that, you know, Commander Data on Star Trek saved thousands of lives on a regular basis. You know, that's an example of an AI that would have these same kinds of learning capabilities. The idea that these machines are just immediately going to act like us is stupid because of the fact that, first of all, you know, nobody does anything without any motivation. What exactly is a machine's motivation? You know, that, that's basically, you know, we put the motivations in it, and even then it's not the machine's motivations, it's our motivations. You know, at one point or another, is it possible that our automated systems could be turned on us? Yes, they could, but it would be by human beings doing it, not by machines. Um, and that's basically it. I mean, when you're programming anything, there are certain, you know, situations where you can make a computer kind of be a bit more creative to try to help you solve problems as they happen. But even then, there are always fail-safes in the back, not to mention just being able to pull the plug. <laughs> so anyway, um, does that kind of address where you're coming from, Dark Dancer? Oh, yes, partly it does. It does cover the machine automation and the program. But um, if we have the time, I would like to hear your uh, your thoughts about the technological unemployment and the failure to adjust from the older people in our society. How are we going to deal with these issues? Because technological unemployment is outracing our ability to implement a resource-based economy. Well... Something that I would point out, because I talk about technological unemployment all the time, because I see it right here in my home state of Michigan, um, it's not always the automation. It's also just the fact that shipping technology is so much better that things are getting outsourced to countries, because now building something entirely in another country just to bring it back to yours to sell it is not really that infeasible. There was a time when it was. That's not the case anymore. It's very easy to make things in Singapore, Hong Kong, China, Mexico, India, Bangladesh, all of these countries where people are so desperate for work that they'll work for 10 cents an hour. And for the time being, that's cheaper than a machine. Eventually, when machines are cheaper than that, you won't even be seeing that much anymore. Even the poorest countries in the world will not be able to, the world will not be able to find employment. That's not an if. It's not a when. I mean, it's not even just a when. It's a, it's a surety. It's going to happen. And it's happening now. You know, especially in a, a system where people are motivated by profit, there is nothing to slow them down from that. I mean, in the United States, we used to have a certain degree of ethic that said that I was proud that my company only employed American workers. I was proud that my company only sold products, you know, made with American parts. People don't have that anymore. We're back to that movie. Um, the last time I mentioned it, Peter Joseph was in my chat room, and he was able to discern which movie it was. I think it was called The Corporation, but... At one point, Michael Douglas says, greed is good, greed works. And um, what he was talking about was he was basically teaching college students how to be good businessmen. And that system just perpetuates that. Now, as far as people not being able to make the changes, um, I do believe that that's going to happen. And unfortunately, that very same thing, <laughs> sorry, guys, is exactly why the system is going to change. You know, the, the changes are going to happen anyway. Um, and those are what largely are going to be what the motivator is, is the fact that, you know, hey, uh, I don't have a job now. You know, this is the thing that I don't think people understand. A lot of people especially don't recognize how real this problem is. Where I live in Michigan, the economy is so obviously bad, you know, that people here can see it firsthand. But in a lot of places, there are people who have a lot of faith in capital, the capitalist system because they happen to be living in a place where it's doing just fine. They can't see beyond that. They can't see to the third world countries that are already being destroyed by the capitalist system. They can't see to the countries, you know, or basically even to the states in the same country that they live in, 
You see it all the time in the Zeitgeist forums, forums, various people who obviously have never, ever wanted for anything who show up to tell you that there's nothing wrong with the system. You know, and then you, you quote the stuff that Peter does in the beginning of Zeitgeist about how many people suffer and die, how many people you know, have like 40% of the, America, of the whole world's wealth is like this tiny number. You know, tell me that that's supposed to be the most fair and equitable way. That's always what they say, that the price system and the monetary system are the most fair and equitable way to distribute the resources of the planet. That's insanity. And, uh, yeah, go ahead and say something, Chris and Brian. I know you want to. Yeah, I mean, that particularly, it's like, it really is. It's the definition of insanity. How can this monetary system in any way be related to fairness or, you know, any kind of concept like that? I mean, the whole the whole system that we're in opens the door for corruption at its very foundation. I mean, from the second that you walk into any sort of monetary system or government system, for that matter, immediately you have to deal with corruption. And, you know, going back to Dark Dancer's comment about the unemployment, I mean, I agree. I think that the rate at which people are becoming unemployed due to technological advances, whether it's actual technology or like uh, you said with the outsourcing, which is really related, you know, I think that what could perhaps be the positive thing of that is that the more that people come employed, unemployed because of technology, the more that people are going to realize that technology really is improving our lives. And so we make it to a, to a point where there are an insane amount of people who are unemployed because of technology, but that's also then an insane amount of people who will realize, wait, look at what technology has done. It completely uprooted my life. Now, is there any way that I can take that technology instead of it being a bad thing, turn it into a positive thing to where everyone in my family and around me can benefit? So, you know, it's one of those things that's like, we're often in the Venus Project, the thing that you talk about is, you know, when a big crash happens, that's when the setting's really going to be in place for this to become a reality. And it's like unemployment is one of those main things that is about that crash is that that's when people are really going to start thinking outside of the box. And with technology, until people start getting outside of this, you know, like you say, the Terminator thing, like, oh, technology is evil, it's going to kill us and take over the world, it's like people got to start thinking outside of that box. And when they're broke and they're starving, you know, that is a major catalyst for that. Absolutely. You know, and Honestly, you know, that's another thing that people tend to forget is that, you know, like even Peter Schiff, I mean, he's a free market economist, so I don't agree with everything he says, but he works with Ron Paul, and he pointed out that the only reason that our system is even still functioning is because we keep borrowing money from China, you know, or printing money with the Federal Reserve to just constantly keep injecting money into our economy to make it function at all. And if we weren't doing that, it would already be breaking down. That, that's one of the things that's so messed up about it. Now, they, they always give us the sound money crap, like, well, maybe if we just switch to the gold standard, everything will be okay. The first thing that I would say is, again, you know, we're going to fix it again. We're going to get rid of the central bank again. I mean, yeah. geez, just sit and watch the money masters. It's three, like, three and a half hours of nothing but this central bank, that central bank, this central bank, that central bank. It's the only thing that's consistent through the entire monetary system is that somebody's going to create another central bank to screw it up. I personally don't want my grandkids or even great or great great grandkids to be dealing with this all over again, and that's why we have to change something entirely. I mean, it's it's the same attitude that they say, well, what if this communist group, you know, we'll, we'll be different, we'll be better, or these socialist socialist group, you know, we'll be good socialists. Those other people, they were not good socialists. We're good socialists. Don't worry, it'll work this time, you know. And it, 
technology is not going to allow it to happen. That's really what it amounts right. to. Is any system wherein there is profit, where the only way in which some uh, the vast majority of people have in order to survive is to essentially peddle their labor, you're not. You're, there's never going to be enough money to to be you know to basically keep circulating in that system. Um, and that's like actually recently uh, the Guns and Bullhorns guys on YouTube, the ones that I um, refuted a little while ago, said that well cyclical consumption is not a problem because they left out the investor. And I pointed out to them, nobody's investing any money in places with depressed economies because they know it's suicidal. Nobody's going to build a business in Michigan. Why would they? Nobody's buying anything in Michigan. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't solve anything to invest money right now. And that's actually what the Great Depression was about, was that the rich people saw that the economy was bad, so they just held on to all their money, which, of course, just made it worse. You know, these things are not necessary, and that's why I just, when people talk about it, it's like, I don't want to move backwards. Mankind is moving forward. The state of technology is not going to allow us to make these things, you know, fix these things like it used to. The system was already getting worse. Now, the, the never-ending inoculations, or I wouldn't even call them inoculations. It's more like, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and, you know, the endless money of borrowing that we do from other countries is actually more like taking a headache for a, you know, brain tumor. It's going to make you feel good for a while, but eventually the bottom's going to fall out. And that, that is the system that I don't think people grasp, is that it's not just a matter of if, it's going to happen. You know, it's already beginning to happen. And it, the, our government has done a really good job of preventing us from knowing the causes of it. You know, we watched the national debt clock shoot up, like, you know, so fast you could actually watch it. I remember back when I was a kid, one of my first memories of watching TV was during the Reagan administration looking at the national debt clock as it shot up. <laughs> you, know, you think that's going to go on forever? Obviously, it's not going to go on forever. It has uh, to stop somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it stops when we all realize that money is dumb. That, that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, it, it, even beyond just the issue of money, you could also talk about the fact that the resources on the planet are finite. We only have so many. And if we utilize technology the way the Venus Project would like us to, then that, that amount of resources could very easily be cultivated. The problem is, is that we also have this tendency that if the technology in any way threatens the scarcity that we use to profit, then companies will go out of their way to destroy that technology or to buy it out or to hold it for themselves. There's a reason why all the oil companies all own the best patents for motors that don't use gasoline, you know, yeah. because they don't want anybody to use that technology. And they do a really good job, like you said, about people saying, oh, it's like 800 years in the future. That, you know, it's just like when they told us that hydrogen is the best solution. Now, I'm starting to learn different things from um, an engineer friend of mine, but for the longest time, hydrogen was crap in comparison to the other solutions that have already been given to us. But when hydrogen is finally used, there'll still be a filling station. They'll still have something that they can charge people for, and I think that's what the oil industry is really counting on. They don't want people to go home to their geothermal-powered homes and plug in an electric car like the ones that were, you know, demonstrated in the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? And those cars were even built inefficiently on purpose to try to prove that it couldn't be done. You know, that's, that's the thing that I don't think people recognize is that are the change, you know, how are they going to be able to handle the changes? They're not going to be able to handle the changes. And unfortunately, um, as Jacques pointed out to me when I met him here in Michigan, he thinks that it's going to come down to a crash because nothing else is really going to make people listen. Um, that tends to be the way these things happen. Every major social change. I think we talked about this in the last show. French Revolution, Russian Revolution, you know, these are all catastrophic events that made people think, you know, maybe we need to be doing something else. 
And I, don't, I do not in any way condone the idea that we should be violent. And I should also point out that the book um, does not condone trying to intentionally crash the system either. Okay? It'll happen on its own. You don't need to do that. As soon as you start doing that, you get viewed as a terrorist, and rightfully so. So essentially, you know, these changes are going to happen. That I guess that's what I'll put it at. Are already in the process of it. It's just a matter of what are we going to do when the dust clears. Because if we try to maintain a capitalist system, we will have a whole new breed of nobility, that being the people who already have money, and peasantry, those people who are desperately trying to find their way to be useful to somebody else to give them some money. And I don't look forward to that, but it may take that to get everybody to realize that this, basically the wool that has been pulled over our eyes for so long is just crap. It really is crap. Yeah. Any final statements before we go on to the next chapter? I agree with you completely. <laughs> <laughs> you said it really well. I mean, it's, it's, you know, just like you said, the best thing while we sit, you know, um, with this knowledge amidst, you know, the continuation of this before the, the, you know, the final breakdown, it's like the best thing we can do is just educate ourselves about everything that is wrong with this system, why we should move to the next one and just educate ourselves what a resource-based system can be and all that because inevitably it will fall. Absolutely. Anything from you, Dark Dancer? Nope. Uh, I think the questions were pretty well answered, and I'm pretty curious about the next chapter as well. Please continue. All right. Well, to my uh, panelists once again, um, you may mute your mics. Um, one of the things that, uh, the ne in between these two chapters, actually, there is some artwork of Jacques Fresco's, which obviously I can't um, display because we're, you know, reading over the radio. Maybe I can get these pictures on BTV somehow and, and explain what they're about, but I'll just kind of give you an idea. He's giving his pictures of robots constructing robots, um, nanotechnology, um, mega excavation machines, automated tunnel assembling machines, the construction of towers, he's showing like these, so basically how these towers just kind of build themselves. Um, massive lifting cranes, um, mass-produced extruded dwellings. Um, it basically, it's like kind of a factory for houses. And when you look at it, I, this is one of the things, that you can tell Jacques and Roxanne this for me, guys, is I just want like a little model of one of these houses that they make. They look so cool. <laughs> it doesn't even need to be a big one. I'm going to set it on my desk next to my action figures and other collectibles. Um, <laughs> just a little model of one of these houses. Um, and it's, it's cool the way it all fits together. It's like they make these little modules, which you assume are about the size of a really good-sized apartment, and then he just kind of fits them all together. And... Sorry about that, folks. Um, lifting and positioning crane. It's like he's got this automated crane set up to be able to build these apartment complexes that are designed in such a way that they're easy to construct and, and, and to pull down as needed. Um, and uh, automated construction systems. I'm looking here at a picture of um, a, a machine that's basically building a building entirely by you know, basically being done by robots. Um, his modeling skills are great. So anyway... Um, all right, we're now moving on to Chapter 9, When Government Becomes Obsolete. Governments enact many different laws in an attempt to control society. I don't know why I'm having so much trouble reading today. 
However, we find no evidence of a deliberate plan by any government to design a sustainable and workable social system to improve the lives of everyone rather than the few holding high positions in the established order. Visionaries have sought to improve the lives of people by instigating changes within the established social order. Semanticists called for improvements and clarifications of meaning in our language. The communists advocate state ownership and the end of capitalism and human exploitation. The fascists created a dictatorship of the rich and powerful. Socialists called for a reordering of our priorities to serve humanity by a more equitable distribution of existing resources. Religious groups crusade for a return to simpler times, to family values, and the teachings of their charismatic leaders. We call for the establishment of scientific scales of performance applied to the social system for the benefit of all. With the applications of the methods... Hold on just a second, I'm sorry. Sorry about that, folks. The gas company just showed up. Anyway, <clears throat> where was I? We'll start with the fascists. They're always nice. That the fascists created a dictatorship of the rich and powerful. Socialists called for a reordering of our priorities to serve humanity by a more equitable distribution of existing resources. Religious groups crusade for a return to simpler times, to family values, and the teachings of their charismatic leaders. We call for the establishment of scientific scales of performance applied to the social system for the benefit of all. With the application of the methods of science to the social system, people would have a better understanding of nature and the symbiotic process of which we are an integral part. This could help provide an understanding of the interrelationships between ourselves and nature and prevent the overexploitation of land and sea. Many people assume that government leaders bring about change with a concern for the well-being of the citizenry but nothing could be further from the truth. Nor did past changes in society come about as the results of efforts of the, in the schools or the home. Established government systems seek to preserve and uphold their own interests and power base. The real forces responsible for change have to do with external events or biosocial pressures that physically alter the environment and establish social arrangements. For example, machines and processes that replace people and remove their means of making a living natural conditions of drought, flood, storm, and earthquake, man-made disasters of economic oscillations, or some outside threat from hostile nations. The Industrial Revolution did more than move the centers of population from small farms to large cities. It changed how we relate to our communities. World War II changed the roles of women in this country. Droughts and wars in Africa today are moving whole populations from their ancestral tribal lands into cities, destroying entire cultures almost overnight. Laws are, at best, attempts to placate our, or control the population, and they work only sporadically. Another method designed to control human behavior is early indoctrination towards a given set of values, such as patriotism, propaganda in the national interest, or nationalism. In this way, the citizenry is programmed to support an existing government and unaware that other options are available. Another safeguard used by, used by and for politicians in the pushing of the concept of personal responsibility that we are all responsible for our own shortcomings, failures, and misfortunes. In fact, in accordance with natural laws that govern all activities, most of our actions are determined by the circumstances that surround us. Many so-called free choices are greatly influenced by the culture and values of our times. 
Man-made laws seek to preserve the established order and protect people from deceptive business practices, false advertising, theft, and crimes of violence. This calls for constant monitoring of the populace because the laws are continuously violated. Such problems are often caused by social insufficiency and are not the fault of individuals. People cry out for laws to relieve hunger, poverty, war, oppression, and scarcity, but the answer lies in removing the conditions that are responsible for these problems in the first place. There is so much economic deprivation and insecurity, even in the most affluent nations, that no matter what laws are enacted, the problems persist. The legislators passing laws have permitted gross violations and often break the law themselves. The need to protect human rights results from having a scarcity-oriented society. This can be seen if you think about such elements as air and water. Although both are necessary for well-being and survival, there are no laws regulating how many breaths were taken per hour because we have an abundance at this time. No one monitors a gushing spring to see how much water someone takes from it, although fresh water is necessary for life. If it is abundant, no one monitors it. In the western U.S., there is a tangle of laws that conflict and overlap on matters of agricultural and fishing rights to fresh water. When a nation creates laws to regulate human behavior, the majority of legislators are unaware of the factors responsible for the need in the first place. All nature is subservient to societies. I'm sorry, all nature is subservient to natural law. Natural law cannot be violated without serious consequences to the individual, individual or to societies. Natural laws dominate all living systems. Without nature's water, sun, or nutrients, plants and animals would die. In an environment of scarcity, hunger, and poverty, human behavior must adapt accordingly. When laws do not correspond to the nature of the physical environment, they will be violated. Consider, consider moral codes that attempt to suppress biological sex drives. Eventually, with a deeper understanding of natural law and the effects of social and cultural influences on human behavior, we may begin addressing the real problems rather than punishing those who transgress. In a resource-based economy, social responsibility would not be a function of force, intimidation, or promises of heaven or threats of hell. Protection of the natural environment would not depend on fines or penalties for polluters. Safeguards against abuse could be designed into the environment. An example of this is the proposed design of cities of the future where people have free access to resources without debt. This would eliminate theft. Such measures are clearly not a matter of passing and enforcing laws to prevent and punish abuse. Rather, they design the flaws out of social ventures in the first place, thus eliminating the need for many laws. Paper proclamations carry little weight in the real world. Such attempts at social order are BS, bad science. Not long ago, black Americans did not have access to public water fountains, despite constitutional guarantees. Many similar examples can be cited as violations of so-called rights. A society with human concern designs out the need for laws and proclamations by making things available to all, regardless of race, color, or creed. When governments make laws, we are led to believe they are made to enhance people's lives. In truth, laws are the byproduct of insufficiency. When population size exceeds available resources, values and behaviors change. With scarce resources, management and allocation are stringent. A set of laws evolves which corresponds to these changed conditions. Tracking a culture's evolution reveals the events and environmental influences change conditions. I'm sorry. 
Tracking a culture's evolution reveals the events and environmental influences that determined its values, habits, outlooks, beliefs, and social conduct. For example, if an outbreak of disease reduced the male population by 80%, laws governing sexual behavior in marriage would undergo vast changes. We long to be free of a flawed, corrupt human thinking and emotions which have made a graveyard of half of the world. In spite of all the laws, paper proclamations, and religious teachings intended to preserve and promote the democratic process in our monetary-based world economy, depravity exists. Even the United Nations, our most enlightened organization, is motivated mostly by self and national interests rather than by the overall good of mankind. As we transition to a cybernated governing of human affairs, newer technologies will remove human error from the political bureaucracy. These machines can provide governing bodies with information rather than opinion, thereby reducing bias and, inter- and irrational or purely emotional elements in the management of human affairs. In this emergent, developing social arrangement, which is not yet established, the rules of human conduct will undergo drastic alterations. A worldwide resource economy could bring about vast changes in human and interpersonal relations without the enactment of laws. It could encourage values relevant to the needs of all people. A world-based resource economy regards the world's resources and technical information as a common heritage of all nations to be used for the benefit of all. This is the unifying imperative. Once in place, the world could see an end to armaments, war, drugs, greed, and the other problems brought about by the endless pursuit of money and power. Humans require an education system that teaches process um, and analytical skills rather than randomly chosen facts. This is important, actually, because it talks about um, one of the major foundations here that I think that a lot of people miss is that the education in the Venus Project Society would be so different that it would basically enable a lot of the curbings of these things that people believe are human nature. I'll read on. Humans require an education system that teaches process and analytical skills rather than randomly chosen facts. Dialogue would replace debate. Semantics would become a core skill that would greatly improve human communication. Students would intelligently evaluate a situation and access relevant information rather than simply solve rote problems. It is not that they would suddenly become better or more ethical, but the conditions responsible for hostile and egocentric behavior would no longer be present. Today, we control human behavior with laws and treaties without changing the physical and social conditions responsible for aberrant behavior. When Earth's resources become a common heritage of all, the necessity for irrelevant laws and social contracts will vanish. Concerning who will govern, the most appropriate question is how will people be governed? People do not have to be governed and do not require leaders unless they are ignorant, captive, wage slaves, or subject to a dictator. If the free enterprise system does not include job security, medical care, and the other necessities that secure the population as a whole, a wide range of conflicts and unmanageable human behaviors result, no matter what laws are passed. No one will decide who gets what. Perhaps the closest analogy within our present culture would be the public library, where anyone has access to any book of his or her choice. Goods and services could be made available in a similar manner across the entire economy. Unfortunately, we are in the habit of thinking that someone has to make decisions regarding our needs. This would not be the case in a cybernated resource-based society without scarcity. 
In the near future, because of advances in technology like artificial intelligence, cybernation, and nanotechnology, we can achieve a global community and share a common vision for humanity. Computerized technology will unite people and eliminate scarcity better than, better than have all the world's religions and democratic ideals combined. We can transcend the limitations of a monetary system and outgrow our needs for politicians and artificial man-made laws intended to preserve and perpetuate the status quo. AI could regulate production, transportation, and all burdensome and monotonous tasks, but not people. A highly integrated complex of computers that serves but never enslaves humankind could carry out the major tasks of decision-making and environmental management. I must again emphasize that this approach to global governance has nothing in common with the aims of an elite few to form a world government with themselves at the helm and with the vast majority subservient to them. This new revision of globalization empowers each and every person on the planet to be all that they can be without living in abject subjugation to a corporate governing body. The question is, can we grow beyond thinking that someone has to make our decisions for us? All right, that's the end of that chapter. Um, just to give people an idea, um, chapter 10, which we'll do in our next show, will be who will make the decisions. I'm going to take some information here from um, our panelists, and then I will be opening the lines for calls. Um, I'm going to start with Chris and Brian. What did you think of that chapter? Um, you know, I think that this chapter in particular is a concept that a lot of people really struggle with just because the idea of not having a government is so far the opposite of what our current system is that it's even hard for people to imagine. But the thing, you know, since finding out about the Venus Project and really thinking about the role of government and politicians and all of that, it's just like I have that realization that it's like, okay, we've had governmental systems for thousands of years in some form. It's gone all over the map all different kinds of systems, but we've had governmental systems for thousands of years, and yet the world is still a complete mess. Now, in my, in my opinion, the, the way that I'm trying to approach everything is, is from a scientific standpoint. And if I look at the dozens of different ways that governments have been run, I mean, and even, even majorly dozens of different ways that governments have been run, what I come to the conclusion is, is that based on all these different experiments of government, none of them actually work. None of them go to the fullest extent that they claim they can go to, whether it's democracy, socialism, communism, whatever it is. And the only conclusion that I can come to, and in my opinion, based on my experiences, the only logical conclusion is that no matter what the system is, if it includes government, it won't work. So now you have this concept that it's like, Let's completely reshape our society to where the conditions that at this point in history cause us to need laws and need government and need this protection, if we can remove those conditions, the end result is that we remove the need for government and for laws. Not to mention that the whole system is completely jacked up anyway. Well, and also it's, it's you know, thinking of, of this past presidential campaign, and you know, one of the candidates ran on a platform of change, yet I never really heard a very strategic, you know, way that things were going to change in order to actually bring about the results and the solutions that everybody kind of, I believe everybody wants in terms of, you know, uh, life being easy and no poverty and no wars and things like that. It seems everyone kind of runs on that campaign, 
but no one actually has a, a sound and solid, you know, manner that they are going to get to us to that point. And then when I discovered things like the, the Venus Project, there is straight up strategic ways in which we will get to this end. And so it just kind of proves that what what they're running on is just kind of a bunch of, of you know, lip service. Well, I mean, it's a political game. It's, yeah. it's so Obama runs on change and it works because, hey, we've had this, this whole Republican administration running it and look, I'm a Democrat. So this is change. And it's like, who knows, in four years or maybe in eight years, the next big Republican candidate can have the same exact platform and win. I mean, the, the political game, the government game is just a, a tennis game back and forth, back and forth. That's all it is. And I mean, the whole, the whole thing is, what she goes into this chapter, is that the whole purpose of government and politicians is to maintain the status quo. And that will always be the case. They can sugarcoat it and make it seem like their whole intention there is for the good of humanity. But when it comes down to it, it is about maintaining the status quo. And that will always exist in any type of government system. Absolutely. Particularly any system that has a monetary system that allows corporations to purchase politicians. You know, yeah. when you think about, like, you know, the, the great, like, uh, difficulties that good politicians have, like Senator Mike Gravel, you know, didn't really make very much money in his presidential campaign. The only reason they didn't snuff out Ron Paul is because his followers got behind him. The same is basically true of Dennis Kucinich. Uh, Dennis did not have as many followers, I'd say, overall, but he has very dedicated followers who are still following him to this day, um, and even just as a congressman. And it, it generally, being a good politician is a great way to make sure. Make, let me use a different word: a statesman. If you really wanted to be a statesman, you're not going to get elected in any system where you know where the monetary system is is in power. You know, in my own run for Congress, I'm sure I've mentioned this in previous shows. My opponent, Candace Miller, takes a lot of money from Halliburton. Lo and behold, she also never votes for any kind of like end to the war uh, in Iraq. You know, Halliburton makes an awful lot of money over there. Am I supposed to think that's a coincidence? Of course not. You know, and that's another reason why when these people talk about their constitutional republic, you know, this is one of the biggest fights I get into with my friends from the former Ron Paul revolution, is that they think that, well, maybe if we just get a good politician elected, actually I believe that's quoted in Zeitgeist too, then everything will be fine. The thing is, is that even if we had solid money, even if we had gold standard money, buying politicians would not become illegal and when you're a libertarian, you don't think that you have the right to tell anybody what they can and cannot do with their money. So, well, what do you expect happens after that? Well, I'll tell you what happens after that. You get only politicians who are essentially are willing to work for the highest bidder. And then you wonder why that system continues as it is. It's only going to continue to perpetuate as long as those means are there. I mean, hell, even the Romans and all their brutality and corruption, if you got caught bribing a Roman senator, you were executed. That was like crucifixion. And I'm not saying we should do that, but they recognize that there's a problem. And um, now, what were you going to say? I know, I know you need to talk also, Dark Dancer, so take the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Uh, well, again, I, I can't disagree. I, sorry, I can't disagree with Brian and Chris, although I'm really being critical in thinking, but it's just that... Um, the context of the chapters are really, really clear, and uh, I only have a few remarks I want to make. Um, there was a line in this chapter that stated dialogue would replace debate, which 
I don't know if I misinterpreted, but I kind of feel that debate definitely and always should be a integral part of a society because debate makes for different opinions. Can I, uh, real quick, can I elaborate on that? Sure. Um, I think what he's talking about is that um, dialogue is we're going to decide what we want on our pizza so we have a good conversation about it. We discuss what tastes good. We discuss what our individual likes and dislikes are, and then we come to a conclusion. Debate has a tendency to have a winner and a loser. Dialogue is something where everybody wins, and our goal is to come together to find the best possible solution so that everybody wins. Do you understand the difference in what I'm meaning? Yes, I definitely, I definitely do, yes. I, it's more clear right now. Uh, all right, having uh, said that, there was also a, uh, a part that spoke about not having the need for leaders well, I partially agree with that statement, then there's also the thing of the deeper, well, the deeper aspects of life like, like death and uh, a general, in general, human beings want to have, in the current system, want to have something that they have achieved in life. And currently within the monetary system, that's something like having a good job, etc. And uh, there are people which in our current system we call leaders who promote such types of goals. And even though that I can understand and maybe even agree with the uh, statement that there wouldn't be a need for leaders, I think there would be need for some kind of direction because a human being in the current system, uh, that being said, I hope we get to a resource-based economy and a cybernated government, but seen from the current system, I think there is a need for leaders because they, they at certain points, state goals, which define for the average human being uh, a goal for life. And that also impairs a sense of accomplishment, if you get what I'm saying. I get it. And generally, I think what what people tend to really forget, especially, I guess I have some insight into this since I was running for office, your job basically consists of just making decisions about what gets done with resources most of the time. Just about everything voted on by Congress has something to do with federal money, money being spent somewhere to do something. Those kinds of jobs could go away. Leadership in most cases, um, unfortunately, has been a facilitator of a broken system. And it's not to say that we won't have leaders for a long time, and maybe you know we could have something very similar because, like, you have the interdisciplinary teams that are described in the uh, the Zeitgeist um, orientation guide. Okay, um, those people basically are kind of the equivalent of it. But what is most important is that we won't have any leaders of men telling people necessarily how to conduct their lives based on whatever ideology, or more specifically, what somebody purchased as far as an ideology and the person who got, you know, who got elected. So it doesn't mean leaders are entirely taken out of the equation, but it does mean that their role is incredibly changed and in most cases minimized and hopefully eliminated eventually. Yeah, and, and if I may, I mean, with the current system that we're in now, you know, when leaders and politicians put out these ideas or these goals, it's, that's very loaded because, you know, the reasons that they are promoting in certain situations, the reasons that they're promoting these goals are because they're being paid from these different companies or because of whatever the, the payback for them may be in the long run. Or maybe it is, you know, for the good of, 
of you know their ideas for the good of the the public, but maybe it's not my idea. See, that's that's my problem with the whole leadership thing. Is it's like, you know, people often say, well, we just have to elect ethical politicians, and it's well, what's ethical for Congressman Smith might not be what my definition of ethics is. And I believe in a world where my definition of ethics is just as valid as Congressman Smith's. So, you know, having this, this system that we say, well, we put up these leaders and whatever their ethics are or their goals for society are, we almost put it on this pedestal as if those are the best. But it's just, it's, it's not true because we're in a society that every person encounters thousands and thousands of experiences throughout their life and each one of those experiences shapes them into the person that they are and gives them the concepts of ethics and what is right and what is wrong. And when we start promoting one person's idea of what is right and what is wrong or their goals or whatever it may be over someone else's, that's when the whole system kind of starts to become corrupt and starts to leave people out. And if anything, you know, you remove your, your fear is that Dance, uh, dark dancer, your fear is that if we remove leaders, we remove people who are going to be putting the goals out there in the direction. But this whole system with the resource-based economy and the equal access to the Earth's resources, is the, that is the direction. That is what the goal is. That's the, the continuing drive that will always be a part of a society based on, on the Venus Project because it will always be about constantly improving each and every one of our lives. And, and that in itself is the driving force. Well, that's what you and, you and I believe because uh, I am definitely pro-Venus uh, Project, but when you're explaining this to the average human, human being, then uh, controlling the Earth's resources might just not be enough. I mean, the, the, the thing I'm pointing at is what is going to give the average human being an incentive to be a pro this system instead of being for the current system, which does, give the average person, and not, I'm not trying to dump down the general population because uh, some people say that uh, this and that percentage of the population is stupid. I don't agree. A human being is not more stupid, and I'm pretty sure most of you would agree with me. But in the current system, the average human being does need a set of goals in order to live this life. And I'll give you a, a good example. I have a girlfriend. I have a really beautiful girlfriend, and this is not relevant to the show, but I, I'd like to say. And I had a conversation about the Zeitgeist movement and about the Venus Project with her. And the problem I run into is that at a certain point, uh, she just gets really angry with me and starts to talk like, well, what if I can get a good job and what if I can work my whole life accomplishing great things, accomplishing a great wage? What else, what point in life, or sorry, what is the point in life if I don't have that to accomplish? And that for me alone just states the fact that people in general need a goal in order to, to, to survive, if, if I may put it that way, because it makes their life more exciting and interesting. And even though you and I, the, uh, managing the Earth's resources in a responsible way, advancing our technology, exploring unexplored fields as an incentive to, an, to a certain part of the population. At this point, and this will definitely change in the future, but at this point, it's not as relevant as, as other goals. Well, I think, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, it sounds, I've heard, it sounds like what your girlfriend is saying is things I've heard people say to me, you know, it all depends on a certain person's programming based on the environment they've been exposed to. You know, if she thinks that like life is about getting a job and, and doing these great quote unquote great things, which are just, you know, the quote unquote great things of the time, you know, and, and it's based on the society and the environment that certain people were raised in for them to decide what their, their, their definition of great things are, you know? So, this this idea that life is about what your girlfriend seems to think life is about in this time, in this environment, in this society, is exactly what the programming is that a lot of people are running under, you know? This is how they're behaving because of it. So it, it's just one of those things that's like, well, there can be a whole another great descriptive definition of what these great things could be that we accomplish, you know? And it's it's... It's it's not. I don't think leaders that are going to be the ones that have the ability to change a person's programming any different than you. You know, it's it's about educating people that they're believing what they're believing because it's been programmed into their vocabulary. Definitely, but you're talking about the largest part of the population here because really and naturally seeing the part that is realizing that the Venus Project and its ideas as well as the Zeitgeist movement is actually a better uh, way and direction for mankind. Uh, that's just a really smart part of the population. And of course, this is what we're trying to accomplish with the Zeitgeist movement as well, like spreading awareness, but not to generalize people uh, again. But I mean, it's right. a the largest part of, a, of the population is thinking this way is because they're programmed th that way, like you said, and I totally agree with that, it's, it's the conditioning. But uh, when we're trying to implement a resource-based economy, you have to think about a, a few things. I mean, I know I'm talking about uh, the current population and uh, that in a resource-based economy, we will condition people in a, well, no, sorry, that's a bad choice, of course, my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> well, make your point quickly, because we have a caller. Oh, all right, I will. Um, well, like I said, there will be a, a, a huge gap between the current uh, state of mind and the future state of mind. And this is a thing that I find worrying, and we will try, have to find a solution for, and that's well, the end of it. One of the things that this chapter just described is the fact that the state of mind will change a lot when things are made more available. We see that already when you look at the statistics of how much crime goes up and down based on unemployment, unemployment being directly linked to the personal scarcity. I mean, I see it in myself. I am way more stressed out right now than I have ever been in my life, and it's all because of a lack of money. Um, my, my mindset would change if I didn't have all of these things that were slowing me down. So let me go ahead and bring on this caller. Uh, caller in the 516 area code, you are now on the air. Yes, thanks. Uh, I'm kind of new to this whole Venus project. You're coming in very, 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 very badly. Um, are you on a cell phone? No, I'm not. How's this? Is this better? That, that's better, yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm kind of new to this whole Venus idea, but from mm -hmm. what I understand, uh, I, I like the end goal. But from what I understand, your plan is to eliminate money entirely. Is that correct? Eventually. Okay. Now, how would I 
get access to the things that I need if there's no longer any money? Well, first of all, um, the best way for me to start you off would be to tell you to go to the Zeitgeist website, only because I can't possibly explain all of this, you know, in, okay, in you the know what, time you know, would, No, I'm going to go ahead and try to answer you. I'm going to also give you some other information, okay? Now, um, if you go to the Venus Project website, there's information there. You can buy the book that I'm reading right now um, also. It's a very good book. Just make sure you get it from the Venus Project website because it's going to be a lot cheaper there. Um, right. Now, um, to answer well, your question... I, I, I've, I've been to the Zeitgeist website. I've been to the Venus Project uh, website. Um, I've actually even participated in the forums a little bit. So I have a fundamental idea, but my challenge in wrapping my head around this is how to move forward when you've completely eliminated money. Okay. Well, basically this is one of the analogies that I gave once when me and Jacques were doing a radio show together. Actually, he was on somebody else's show, and I called in to help out. And okay. At one point, okay, it's kind of like this, all right? You know, when you lived in your mom's house, did she make okay. you pay for making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich out of the family's resources? No. No, that's right. No. And your mother basically functioned in such a way that she determined how you got all the resources necessary. She made cognitive decisions to determine how much peanut butter, how much jelly, and how much bread she was going to be eating for a given month. What the Venus Project proposes is that we use technology that already exists um, in, in most cases to make the, the things of the earth so abundant that you need to live that nobody has to charge for anything. That's essentially the goal. So you, yeah. you essentially turn the world into your family, and the resources are managed intelligently so that everybody can have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, I, I, I can see how you would do that with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but now, mm -hmm. like in the, in the real adult world, I need things like a house. Occasionally, I need my kitchen remodeled. Mm -hmm. I need a pool right. installed. I need TVs. I want to go on vacation. You know, like, who's going to provide all Like, if there's no money, if no one's working, who am I going to hire to remodel my kitchen? Who am I going to hire to install my pool? How many TVs do I get? How many computers do I get? Well, it depends a lot. No, I understand where you're coming from. Okay, in a lot of cases, a lot of the things that you're talking about would never even really become an issue um, because in most cases, like, for example, do you want a pool or do you just want to live in a really nice community where there is a pool? You know, do you have no, to have your own, own house? Well, no, if you I want, want your own, own pool, pool you, can, you can probably have your own pool. I'm just saying that on, but on how the would, most how part... Would that how would that happen if, if I have no money? Like, who am I calling um, well, to do that? Well, first of all, the first thing you have to recognize is that essentially you're working with a, you know, it's a collective group. Man mankind as a whole evaluates the resources of the planet, evaluates the carrying capacity, meaning how many people can comfortably live on the planet, okay? Right. And then determines how to move the resources based on that. Okay, now that's just the, the fundamental. Now the second part of it, is that the means by which these resources are used is done in the most possible, like the, basically the most efficient way possible. That means using the least amount of resources and at the same time making the most efficient designs. You know, like depending on why you want to remodel your kitchen, is your kitchen run down? In a Venus Project society, most kitchens are going to be designed so that they're not going to get run down for a very, very long time. You know, if you want your pool, in most cases, a lot of these things, these tasks can be automated, okay? And that's essentially where that goal goes. Now, that's a little bit further into the future. 
but people who are already experimenting with it right now, I suggest you look into something called open source ecology because these people are basically figuring out how to, with just some scrap metal, build their own communities with about $10,000 that are completely self-sustaining. Okay. Now, the other thing you need to consider is that um, it'll be a lot easier to be able to put resources into things like giving everybody their own pool if it really comes down to that. If we switch to energy sources like geothermal um, and get rid of a lot of the things that are getting in your way, the reason you need money to do anything right now is because that is how resources are exchanged. And unfortunately, using money as a medium to exchange resources always ensures that somebody has more resources than somebody else, and it allows people to corner the market on it so much that you end up in a situation where there's always the rich, there's always the poor. You know, we have different labels for it, well, but right now there are a lot of people in America that live like peasants, and there are a lot of people in America who live like kings, and right. they're well, all supposedly equal. Well, um... Um, but right, but but today, I, no one cornered the market on pools. No one cornered cornered the market on kitchen remodels, on computers. I have access to all of those things. I don't know. Like, let's say we start this thing tomorrow, and you make everything free or whatever. I, I mean, people are going to want stuff. How do you decide? You can't just give everyone everything that they want. You know, there, there's got you need well, scarcity. We live in a world. Go ahead. Of um, obviously, Chris and Brian want to get in on this. Head on it. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's just one of those things. It's kind of, you know, well, I mean, okay, first of all, I think that we, we have to realize, too, in, in a system where there isn't money, the value system of each individual is going to be vastly different. So right now, you want your own pool. I want my right. own pool. You want three TVs. I want three TVs. What if after we did a complete testing of all the available resources on the planet, it came down to the fact that, if you have your own pool and I have my own pool, that means people in other parts of the country aren't going to have schools or aren't going to have health care. Would you still want your own pool? I know that I wouldn't. And that's what this I would, that takes I, that I, I would I would I would opt out for a system where we have to choose between pools and schools. To me that sounds like a step backwards. I, I would why would anyone but want to that, those backwards? kinds of decisions are already being made right now. That's why our schools suck, yet our politicians live in giant houses. With huge pools. Wait, uh, wait, yeah, yeah. Wait, <laughs> wait, Pete, you're saying the reason why we don't have to isn't in the United States, everyone gets access to an education. I mean, we can argue on the value of that education, but the value of an education is not decided upon, upon whether I build a pool or not. Right? Um, no, but I mean, wouldn't that be a step? No. I mean, I mean, it wouldn't be the wouldn't the goal of a Venus project be to uh, create more wealth, or you're saying, no, let's take it a step back, let's live less wealthy, let's live a more primitive lifestyle this way. No, definitely not. The, the exact but, opposite, I mean, if actually. But if, I'm, but if I'm making a trade of pools, I mean, if I can't have a pool, I, to, to me that seems like I, we're taking a step back. Well, it's almost like, it's almost saying you are you are projecting onto living in the world of the Venus Project, you're still projecting the wants you have from today living in today's society. Because right now within the monetary system, you see having a pool as something where you could, I don't know why you use the pool, maybe it's when you're done working, you come home, you like to swim, things like that. Well, say you had, you had the ability to, I mean, what's your favorite thing to do? Do you like to eat? Do you like to go to restaurants? Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I, I do like to eat. <laughs> I do like to go to restaurants. So, so, 
Yeah, so do you like trying new foods? Do you like, you know, well, say you, no. could, say you could visit every restaurant on the planet and try every brand new kind of food with no price attached to it. You could just get on a new transportation system and you can go and you can try these new foods in different places all for free. Would you really right. still want a pool at home or would you say, I really don't need a pool. I can go to a pool here, a pool there, a pool anywhere. Do I really right. need this in my house? I see, but, I, but to, to me today in today's economy, we're not making trade-offs between eating and swimming in a pool. I mean, if we need to make that kind of trade-off, it seems like we're taking a pretty big step back. Well, I mean, all right, let me the let purpose me. of an economy. The purpose of an economy is to produce wealth, which means it's supposed to produce things of value, and those are things of value, things like pools, things like TVs. Um, so if, if okay. the economy is not able to produce that in a Venus system, then it seems like we're poor. We're taking um, the okay, well, allow me to allow me to elaborate. Okay, okay the, in a Venus Project society, there will be pools and TVs in everybody's house. In the society that we have right now, people do not all have access to an education, as you said already about the value. Okay, and in the society that we have right now, the system that facilitates what you're talking about is breaking down very fast. And that's because of the fact that the ability of the individual to make money is being threatened. Unless you're lucky enough to already have some, um, I don't know where you live. Perhaps the economy is much better where you are. Where I am in Michigan, um, my wife sustains us on a single Burger King job. And I would be ashamed of that if it weren't for the fact that the vast majority of my friends can't find any job. Michigan is kind of an example of what's happening in a lot of places where the industry that, the, that drove the economy is gone because it's either been automated or outsourced to countries where people are even more desperate than I am and will accept 50 cents an hour because that's all they can get. Okay. Right. Now, well, but then that means that, 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 uh, well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, then that would mean that you need to then pursue a job that doesn't pay, that pays more than 50 cents an hour. Right. Well, <laughs> that I, yeah, if, pursue a job, yes. But it, basically the only reason why they're even outsourcing is because of the fact that at this moment um, outsourcing is cheaper than robots. Anywhere where right. robots well, are that's being how you, made, that's how you get gain. That. right. Well, well eventually you're going to run into a point, and that's kind of where we're getting at, is that technological unemployment is on the rise. It's just a matter of time before it entirely, basically just totally makes the workforce so small you know, that you're going to be desperate trying to find some way to make yourself useful to the people who have the money so that you can get it in the first place. This problem only makes itself worse. In Michigan, it starts off with, well, they have all these skilled laborers who are now out of work. They end up in the service sector selling stuff for other people, like, you know, in stores, sales and stuff. Well, then nobody has any money because of so much unemployment. Somebody's buying anything. So then those companies and then in turn lay off more and more salesmen and then you kind of have, well, oh, well, now we're making even less money because there's even more unemployed. Well, now what do we do? And well, what we do is we pick up and we go somewhere where people are willing to accept to live in um, pre-depression style lifestyles, you know, because that well, we're basically actually accept slave labor. That what I'm getting at is this, okay, when you talk about taking a step back, the system that you're talking about is already on its way to taking a step back to peasantry and nobility. It's already going there. The step well, back is bad. Uh, it depends on where you live, um, but it's definitely on its way. Here in Michigan, right. we're getting there already. Um, well, well now, if you live in if you live in Appalachia, you need to, you need to move out. I mean, you need to move to where then the jobs are. I mean, you can sit there, I guess, and demand that jobs come to you, um, 
or I guess you can move towards where the jobs. I mean, but I, I don't want to apologize for the company. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to move when you don't have any money? <laughs> uh, I'm not well, being I mean, insulting. Not. I, just, I want you to understand just how bad it gets somewhere. Okay. Um, I, the, it, it's actually a very common problem here in Michigan. Is it's almost like a vortex. It sucks you back in. A friend of mine moved to Chicago, tried to get a better sales job there. Lo and behold, he can't, so he ends up back here in Michigan. Um, right. Just, right. Like that. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that you, you know that you do have these cyclical times where uh, people do get uh, laid off, and that's that's a terrible thing to happen. It's it's tragic. It's not very easy mm-hmm. to just kind of find a new job. It's certainly not easy to move out of state. Or so, right. I, I mean, I, I agree with. Well, you. let me give you. Let me give you another real quick example, okay? If people usually okay. say education is the key, go somewhere there's a job, okay, get, or get educated in a new job. Okay, as more and more jobs are automated, it's not just anything now. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the billboards, for example, for uh, robotic surgery is becoming mainstream, okay? Well, how many surgeons well, are going to get put out of work right now? I don't, I don't gr- agree that there's this problem well, where let, let, let me finish my point. eliminate all jobs. Okay, go. Okay, well, let me finish my point. All right. Now, we can agree to disagree on that, okay? Um, okay. However, it is my understanding, um, especially since I've watched it, like, right up front, um, and you should call into another show when I have more time. <laughs> um, I'll leave you on the call if it'll, if it'll keep you connected. But um, okay. in any case, um, basically, um, this, as I was getting at, the system that you're talking about that facilitates people getting what they want um, is rotting away from the inside. And the reason why is because it is more profitable not to give people jobs than it is to give people jobs. Okay? Right. It is more profitable to lower wages or outright eliminate wages. And that is a trend that technology is making more and more, um, for basically give you more and more fruit all the time. And it, it's not well, showing any signs of going back. Now, let me give me my, now the one point I was going to try to get at. Okay, I had to go to Michigan Works, which is basically a program they send you to if you're unemployed. And when I was sitting there, I expected to see your typical welfare crowd. But I was surrounded by people, and I'm not, I'm not joking here, okay? College-educated people were sitting next to me. The first time I went there, I talked to a guy. He had a degree in business management, and he was an engineer, okay? And I asked him, what, you know, what are you doing here? He's like, well, um, you know, they had me go to Mexico and train some people to do my job, and they said they were going to use me, and they didn't, and they just got rid of me as soon as they could. Okay, the, you're, we're getting to a point where the system itself cannot keep up with what's happening to the job, the job loss. It isn't apparent to many people now. People don't always see it. And I think that maybe I'm more sensitive to it because of my circumstances, but at this moment I can tell you that right now as we speak, I just have my gas turned off for the next couple months because I can't afford not to. Okay. Um, there is nothing I could possibly do to improve my situation right now at all. I, you know, I don't have the money to go to school. There are no jobs available, even fast food jobs. My wife got her job only because somebody else gave her her crappy fast food job. The roommate that I you know, got a job got his job only because I gave him my job when I decided to be a stay-at-home father when we were doing, all, you know, when we were doing better. And we've only got 90 seconds left on this show, so, um, but I'd like to invite you to call back in at another time and we can have this conversation. I'll be happy to debate you on this subject. Um, okay. And uh, everybody say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. It was fun.
<laughs> Bye. Thank you, Neil, for having me on the show again, and I'd have to show up the next show as well. All right, excellent. Um, I don't know if it's going to keep our caller on past the timer. I know that it records past the timer. I guess we'll see. Um, I'll let you guys know when that's happened. But um, in the meantime, though, uh, at this point, picking up and moving is something that you can only do if you can afford it. Um, there are people less, there's more and more people now who can't afford it. Um, and even when you do move, you have to have a job when you get there. And yeah, there are places that are doing better, but that's kind of like um, you, you can move away from the plague for only so long before it infects the whole world. And well, that's what it, I'm afraid is happening. Right. But if, if I can bring it back, actually, to my original point, which was money. Why eliminate money? Why not? Because at some point, decisions need to be made as to, you know, how many laptops can go around, how many TVs can go around. Why not give people an instrument for them to pick and choose of what's being produced that they want to have? You know, call it money, call it a dividend, call it a, you know, call it whatever. Call it, mm -hmm. you know, gold nuggets, <laughs> you know, whatever you But that's what I'm saying. So I don't understand why eliminate that piece of technology, that mechanism, which would make the distribution choices, you know, it would put that in the hands of the actual consumer instead of some computer deciding what I can get and when I get it. That's, that's the point that I'm trying to understand. And the consumer, not to mention the corporation, will have a certain amount of control. Or are we, are we taking corporations out of the equation? No, take it all out of the equation. Everyone gets an equal dividend, you know, equal to – you try to equate it to what we're able to actually produce so people can pick and choose what it is that they want to, you know, spend their dividend on or whatever. But that's not realistic. Put yourself in the position of the third world country. Even if we're making the equal equation here, if you relate that to the real world, that's not realistic. I mean, some person from a from a third world country is living with less than two dollars a day in the monetary system. What chance does he or she has on the on the you have, resources well, you have that you are demanding? Yeah. Well, in a place like if you live in a place where you earn $2 a day, that means you don't have an economy. An economy needs to be built. The quick fix for someone who lives on $2 a day is to uproot that person from wherever it is that they're living and put them in, in a developed economy like the U.S., like Europe, or someplace like that. That's a quick fix for the world's poverty. You know, that's politically, well, you know, n never going to happen in our, in our uh, well, it's not uh, current it's not, it's not yeah. possible to happen. I mean, we're talking about... We're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people. It's not that it's, it's politically unpopular. It's that it's an impossible thing to do. I mean, in my opinion, it seems that, that the place that you're coming from, to be just perfectly frank about it, is a very limited perspective on what it is that this whole world is. I mean, we're talking on a global level here. We're not talking about laptops, how many laptops we can each get. We're talking about food and education and healthcare and the ability to turn on an electricity in order to heat a stove to cook. You know, pools and, and laptops are, a very, are just, to our society here in America, that's something we're all very used to, but for the majority of the world, that's just not the case. And it's not a matter of just 
upward. I mean, we can't take almost the entire population of Africa and move them to developed countries. It's not possible. To then, do Ian, that. where are these guys? I just don't understand. Like, how is that not going to translate into poverty being then wherever you move them to? Because it's well, not like there's jobs for people who, you know, or this money system you're talking in. What once you move a million people to the U.S. where there's already homeless and jobless Americans, then what? Then do they get access to the things that a modern, mature, uh, technologically sophisticated economy can produce? You can't move factories from the U.S. to Africa as easily as you can move people from Africa to the U.S. That was the point that I was making. If you want to cure poverty, you need to get goods and services into those people's hands. And it's a lot quicker to, to move them to the economy than to move an economy to them. That's the point that I was making. That's all. But, well, Again, I still, point, uh, go ahead. No, I was just, I don't, I guess I still am unsure of the, the, the math behind your point is that if you move, take, let's, let's get a, a, a figure that I'm just creating out of thin air, a million people who don't have access to these things in Africa. And you take right. a million people and right now you move them to the United States where there is people who have computers and people who have certain levels of information and technology and stuff like that. Now, how do these million people get access to I mean, they're in the country that it's in, yes. Now, right. how do they get access to the computers and the information that people have? They get to take advantage of the infrastructure that we've built up over the past 100 years so that the things that they need, like food, clothing, um, housing, you know, it would be a lot easier for our existing machinery, infrastructure, to build that for them here than to build that infrastructure in, you know, start from scratch in a, in a new country. Well, that's, that's assuming that everyone in our country already has a job and is already cared for and already has a home. I mean, we're, we're, we already have millions of people who have been living within this system their entire lives and have had access to exactly the same things you have had access to, but they're homeless and they're jobless and they can't but feed their family. Not, I mean, we have... But that's not because the economy can't provide that. That's, that's the problem. That's a symptom of our current monetary economic system, which I agree um, is flawed, and we need to get rid of it. Um, that, that, that's the problem. But that, if the right. problem isn't that uh, we don't have an economy capable of producing a home, a computers, cars for everyone living here. Right. Well, that's actually one of the cruxes of the point here, okay, is that we, we do have that. Um, is the caller still there? Yes. Okay, good. I, I just, it got quiet. I want to make sure. Um, we do have the ability to do that, but in a monetary right. system, it doesn't happen. And it's because right. of the yeah. fact that we, the means by which we exchange things has, has essentially the intent. Okay, look at it this way. As soon as you have a system of essentially credits, okay, that's what money is. It's credits, okay. Um, and in all the futuristic movies you watch, they, they exchange things through credits, okay. In any system where there are such things, such a means to exchange, um, essentially what's going to happen is you're going to run into a situation where somebody wants more of the credits than everybody else. And they really don't care about anybody outside of that. Um, it also tends to trigger certain psychological aspects that come along with that. And one of those is that you know, it becomes a survival instinct. You begin to hoard the credits. You begin to go out of your way to try to make sure that you always have them. And it's because of the fact that you don't want to ever be in a situation where you can't take care of yourself. That's the reason that those systems always break down to corruption 
I mean, you talked about the monetary policy. A lot of people say, well, if we went to sound money, as we had already covered in the show, you know, everything would be fine. But then I just said, again, we'd just be doing it again. And it just keeps happening over and over again, that our monetary policies are always corrupted. And right. what happen, needs to happen instead, let me, let, me, let me finish. What needs to happen instead is that our means by which that we, quote, unquote, exchange resources needs to be handled in the, in the fashion similar to what we do in our homes. We acquire the resources necessary, given what we can, and then we distribute those equally. Your mom's not going to charge you for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but if your brother hasn't eaten yet, she's going to tell you not to eat at all. Okay, that's an example of how those things get done. And it, it, at that point, it needs to be done on a global scale. It doesn't have to be that done that way to get started by any means. Those people, you know, the, the open source ecology are already proving that you can do it on a very small scale. What needs to be done overall, this is another major thing, okay, self-sustenance needs to be the issue, okay? Rather than having to ex have money to exchange for your electric bill, we should just be installing solar panels that already work right now on people's houses and getting it over with, okay? Rather than um, exchanging money with people in order to pay for, you know, gasoline in our cars, we should be using geothermal energy all over the world to produce more than enough energy to power electric cars, the, the whole attitude that comes behind money and anything that involves profit, okay, will always corrupt that system. Even the communists and the socialists, okay, they said the same thing that you're saying now. They said, well, why don't we just have a money system that allows people to equitably determine how much they get? Well, what ends up happening in those situations? The socialist structures fail, okay? Michigan is like, actually, its government almost shut down last year because they're trying to use socialism to patch the failures of capitalism, and the socialist programs don't have any money in them because you can't tax anybody with, for money that they don't have. Well, I, don't, I don't advocate. I don't advocate socialism. I'm not. I, right. What I'm didn't. saying. What I'm saying is, you determine how much you can output in your economy. You put a number on it. Whatever that number is, 14 trillion dollars for all human sake. You divvy it up equally. You give it to everyone, and you use that as a system so that I can decide. You know, I. You know, maybe I don't need a computer, but I'd rather have more TVs than more computers, so I can make that, you know, individual decision for my own life, you know, based on what is available. Um, you know, maybe I want an upgrade on my car. Maybe you don't care about cars. I do. You know, I want right. a more fancier car. So we, we have that ability to make those kinds of decisions because otherwise, you know, you use that analogy where, you know, your mother's going to make the peanut, peanut butter and jelly sandwich for you. My, my concern would be who's going to be my new mother, and do I want a mother, you know, like I'm an adult, do I want someone telling me, you know, whether I can have the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I want to be able to make those decisions, and I feel like with that dollar bill, with that, whatever you want to call it, gold nugget, um, you know, with that voucher, you know, that's my vote to say, I place my vote, um, I think the economy needs to produce, you know, more whipped cream than Cool Whip. You know, as far as the, the, the mother generalization, we're not talking about a nanny who's going to tell you how to live your life, but the adequately, essentially, essentially equitably exchanged resources in the other hand, your mother saying, hey, uh, stop pigging out on the you know, <laughs> bread there, your brother needs to eat, is, is something that could be done in our system. And it, it, you know, inevitably, you might run into situations where the Venus Project Society is going to tell you, you know, I'd really like to give you that thing that's made of that extremely small resource. And when you say that you have the choice, though, if in a monetary system, you don't have the choice. You have the choice, essentially, to work for somebody else to hopefully get what you want. And in many cases, that means that the, the employer really has all the choices, okay? 
um, at that point, they determine how much you get paid. And the trend right now is to work very hard to make sure that that's as little as possible. Okay, that, that's the system that leaves people out in the cold. Now, we, now let's imagine for a moment, let's imagine for a moment that we turned all of the world's production resources using the best possible technologies, including technologies, this is a big part of this, okay, a huge component of this, is technologies that you're not aware of because the corporate structure, the profit-motivated structure doesn't want you to know about those better technologies because those technologies, if they were employed, would remove their profit, okay? Let's imagine that we turn the whole world towards that. At that point, if you want to have five televisions, it's more likely that you're probably going to be able to do it. Not only that, the televisions that you're going to have are not going to have any planned obsolescence, so you won't need to be replacing them every week. You know, I mean, nobody replaces their TV every week, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, a lot of the other things that you think are important in many cases would be communal property, just meaning that, you know, you can own your own stuff if you want to. Um, if you haven't watched the Zeitgeist Orientation, I would watch that I, because I watch, it makes it sound really well. But, you know, it's like you can have your own golf clubs, but if you go to the golf cl- you know, if you go to the golf course, there's golf clubs sitting there for you. Just use them. You can have your own bicycle if you really want to, but if not, you know, go to the, you know, go to the place that you want to ride your bike, pick up a bike and ride. You know, it, it's a different attitude about the way things are done and what kinds of um, uh, essentially values. This is something that um, the two cyclists that we were just talking to were trying to point out to you was that in many cases, a lot of people want some of the things you're talking about because of the social gratification. People say, well, I want a bigger house. Honestly, um, I hate having a a house as big as I do now, and my house is not even that big. Now, mind you, that's me, but I'm a bit more practically minded. I was raised very, you know, I was raised in a a very, you know, bad neighborhood. So things like that were never really a motive of mine. Um, I basically exist on the bare necessities, and it doesn't kill me. You know, that's not what's getting rid of, it's not what's making me unhappy in life. But there are some people who think that if you don't have five televisions, that you're not a good human being, that you failed somehow. There are some people who think that if your car doesn't look pretty, that you failed somehow. I remember one of the biggest things that I heard, and I want to make sure the other two callers get to talk before you and I do again, because we're kind of dominating the conversation here, but... When I just exposed this to one guy from the Ron Paul Revolution, he said, well, I don't like this system because I can't better myself. And I said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, what if I want a Lear jet with, like, a jacuzzi in it? I said, how does that make you a better person? He's like, well, you know, it just does. I was like, that's crap. You know, I said, now, what, you know, how many people do you know of who lay off 100,000 workers so they can afford their Lear jet? Did that person just better themselves as a human being? Absolutely not. And I'm going to make one more point, and this is about fashion, which is another example of things that people think that they want. Fashion is crap. I mean, when I grew up, you know, in the inner city, um, the, you know, the rap thing is really important, and guest jeans were really popular. The only difference between guest jeans and Wrangler jeans was that guest jeans have a triangle with a question mark on them. There was nothing different about that pair of jeans at all. But if you didn't have that pair of jeans, you weren't cool, you weren't successful, you weren't a viable person. This is an example of the huge change in values that really change affects how, like, what people want. You know, why do you have to have your own swimming pool if you live in a community with a big swimming pool in it? You know, I mean, if you want your own pool for privacy, maybe that's an element. 
but I'm just saying that in a lot of cases, these things that you know that people value would not be valued as much as they would you know would be if people had more things available to them. There would be no social gratification. You could have 30 pools and nobody would care. Well, well I, but I dis I disagree. I, I think that people get you know jeans because they value style. I, I like me. I I value style. I like to have nice things not because. You know, I have a need to show off to people, but because um, I like them. You know, it's just like art. I mean, you know, I like a piece of art than, you know, a blank white wall. Um, right. You at least acknowledge that, you, real quick, do you acknowledge the fact that there's not really, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the brands, okay, but when the difference of a style is that the logo on it, Okay, and they charge like $40 more for the pair of the jeans. Okay, they're the same damn jeans. But a logo can be so powerful. Okay, and it's just a logo. It, it has well, nothing to do with how, how comfortable they are, what they look like, other than that logo. That's the social right. stratification I'm talking about. Right, but people, now, don't buy, but people don't buy clothes purely for their utilitarian value. I mean, they buy them fashion to be, you know, to be right. good about fashion. how they look. I mean, they take, yeah, I mean, people take pride in how they look. I, you know, I don't know that that says anything negatively about someone who, you know, uh, you know, is into fashion. I, you know, I don't know that that's something. Well, that it, it does and it doesn't. If you do a little bit more studying, and I'm going to make this point, then we've got to let Chris and Brian pipe in here, um, is that, for example, at one time it was extremely unfashionable for women to smoke cigarettes. I'm sure you might be aware of that. Okay. okay. The cigarette industry hired a psychologist whose entire job was to figure out how to get women to think that it was fashionable to smoke cigarettes. So they staged an event to make it look like women in protest. They paid women to do this, I might add. They basically showed up a parade and like all lit up cigarettes at the same time. And then it became a social movement to say, ooh, women smoking is cool. And then all of a sudden you have women doing something that not only do they not need to do it, they are suddenly like to do it because of the social stratification that is granted by smoking. Okay? And I watched this kill my mother. Okay? <laughs> she had cancer from it. You know, and then you've got to think about the motivation behind people that make these kinds of decisions. And that's when I finally it all rolled up in my head and I'm like, wow, fashion is crap. You can, okay, you can decide what color jeans you want. And in a resource-based economy, you could, have, you, know, you could have access to these genes. And they, you know, even more to the point, you wouldn't be wasting resources because you want a, league, a logo that somehow is from a company that does more advertising and therefore people have more appreciation because you're using it. Now, well, I, um, but, but, I, but I, I think even if you eliminate profit entirely, I think there are going to be people who are considered artists who create a certain style within clothing that people will value, regardless of whether it's more money, whether it looks the same yep. or not. I think people and, will and more, You know what? Uh, there will be more creativity. There will be more creativity because then people I who agree. want to be clothing designers would already have it. Okay, you, they could just design it and then make that open source available. You'd have so much creativity, it would be like coming out of your ears. Now, Chris and Brian, are you still with us? Yeah, we're here. Did you have any comments? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, basically just listening, it goes back to something I've been actually letting sink in more and more and learning that this is just the truth about what it is, is we are products of our environment. We are, you know, if you, you know, the, the talk about the pools and this and that, it's like 
we we have no concept of what could be. I mean, if we let the few, if we let things unfold as as we want to within this Venus Project thing, where we would have access to so many more things, we would understand that the few entertaining enjoyment things we have access to now in this modern day and age are nothing compared to what we could have. And we'd probably look at swimming and be like, oh my gosh, why would I even want a pool? Because I do a hundred different things that I find so much more fun than swimming in pools, but never even knew I liked because I never had the access to because of money and things like that. If you said to someone 500 years ago that someday people wouldn't value their wooden cross in their house and their cow and their thing and they'd value things like going on vacations by airplane to lands far away they'd be like no people are going to value their cow and their wooden little thing and their little metal cloth because people are products of their environment so it's like talking to which is something that is very challenging for me to let just sink in is that we are products of our environment and, and because pools and fashion and things like that seem relevant today they didn't 500 years ago, or they did at some level. But it's like we Before don't even know that the, they don't. We don't even know the potential that there is out there for things we could be doing other than just swimming in a pool and watching television on our five TVs in our house. Like we can have access to so many more amazing things that we would say, God, can I? Be, I can't believe that I spent so much time sitting in front of the TV or sitting in that pool. Or maybe you will spend even more time there, but. Other people, there won't be a demand for pools and TVs because there will be so many things in the world that we would have our at our fingertips. That these like what? Think, like, I mean, like, like being able to travel to a city 2,000 miles away on a maglev train and getting there in an hour. Like, if you had to do that, it didn't cost you a penny to get on that train, and it didn't cost you a penny to go look at this culture and eat the food of another culture and things like that. If it didn't cost you a penny, people would be going on vacation every day to new lands, to try new restaurants, to do new things, and they would not be lazy about it because everybody wants that vacation to somewhere new. And no, the only reason people don't go every day is because they have to go to their meaningless job, and they have to make money, and they have to pay for these vacations with money, and I have to pay for the kids this and pay for the kids that. If people had the access to go scuba diving and into China and see the Great Wall of China and all these things every day with no price tag, I guarantee you most people would do that. And not everybody would want to go to the same place at the same time. And everybody would say, oh, you know what? I want to make a dress because I've always wanted, I've had this desire to create clothes. And you had access to a sewing machine and all the materials you wanted. And you could go try and make the dress. And if you loved it and someone else loved it, you could give it to them for free. And they didn't have to pay for it. And you didn't have to pay for the materials. And it was just that world. You could spend two days making the dress or, like the, or the suit that you want to make because you wanted to try and make it. And none of it would cost money, and then you'd say, what should I do today? Oh, I want to go check out this place because I've never been there and I've heard it's great. And you would right. do that. And you'd be like, I wanted a pool and I wanted three TVs. That's what I wanted when I could have all this. Right, but that, that could happen. Or what also could happen is when you implement this plan and you make the call for the people to build this 4,000-mile-an-hour maglev train, and, you know, a fraction of the people required to build it show up, and all of industry shuts down, and now your output is 50% of what it was because, although there are some people who are willing to work for free, um, half the work that needs to get done isn't getting done. Like, then where are you That's at? That's what automation is for. Yeah, that's what automation but, we're not, we're not, but we're not there today, and I think once we no, get we're there not. in the future... And we're, that's we're why we're not building transatlantic maglev trains just yet either. 
But we right, could but already inflict our lifestyles on a whole. Right, but, but we're going to get know, there kind of, regardless of our current system or not. I mean, the current system is not preventing automation from coming to fruition. No, in fact, it's making it happen pretty fast. Um, right. At least any way that it can make it more profitable. There are right, a lot of absolutely. things that can be automated that would not be profitable, and that's why they're not automated. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It really, it really does all come down to profit. So if at, if at some point it becomes unprofitable for this system to promote automation, automation isn't going to be promoted and we won't get to automation. I mean, the, the whole system, everything that is happening in our system right now is all based on profit. So what, what value systems that we each have, what we each hold dear, what we each think the system can and cannot do, it all comes down to profit. I, and I think about it in the, I don't know if you watch the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Basically what they do is they take this really needy family every week and they get a volunteer base of like hundreds of people who build this house and they, they film it and they put it on the air and I'm, I'm like, I watch it and I think it's like great for the emotional uh, uh, thing involved in it, but at the same time I go like, they wouldn't do it if there was no camera. These people, you know, the, the whole goal is profit, but you can get people to, you can get people to volunteer, those people all volunteer, it's not like, you know, if you had, and the way they get those people to volunteer is by saying like, wouldn't it be great to build these people a house and do good for human beings, and, and hundreds of people show up, and at the same right. time the show is making that show to turn a profit. If it weren't that way, you know, I mean, there's there's things out there like Doctors Without Borders and things like that that definitely do things altruistically and for the good of humankind. But even sometimes now, the things that are done for the good of humankind for today's society standards is for a profit. That show is so big because it has such viewership. And why do people view it? Because they're like, oh, my God, it's doing good for humanity. People are into that kind of thing. They really are. Right. And actually, let me add to what you're saying by pointing out that in many cases, the money, monetary system and the profit motive actually hinder what people can do as far as donating their time. If, like, if there was a project today to go build hydroponic farms in Africa to feed all those starving people, which could very easily be done, I would get on a plane and I'd go do it right now. You know why I can't? Because I can't leave my house because I don't have the money to go do it. Yeah, but you know, well, but, but but money is having money today is the same thing as having resources. So regardless of whether there's money or not, you still not, you still need access to those resources. So if you wanted to do that today, you had to you would have to figure out a way to get a hold of those to, to get a hold of that money. In a Venus project, you would have to do the same thing. You would have to find a way to get a hold of the resources, meaning the labor of people who are willing to build this thing for free, you know, all of the materials that are required to build that. You still need access to resources. There's no difference. No, absolutely. The difference is, is that um, the monetary system is actually holding back access to resources to a select few, and they are motivated well, by, sure, have... by, by making sure that they are still the select few. Okay, but That's why you have companies like uh, the, the big three. They go after anybody who looks like they're going to make a major car company in the United States. DeLorean found that out. Tucker found that out. Okay, it, you know, that's an example of the reason why the money medium is a bad idea. You know, well, are you going to have access to resources? Yes, you are. But this is the reason why it's sometimes difficult to communicate with people about what the Venus Project is about. We're talking about a shift in consciousness at this point, a shift in the way that people look at each other. Okay, 
the resources should be spent in the most equitable way possible. When we talk about making choices, okay, now there's a reason why this is important. Okay, there is a finite amount of resources on the planet. We've established that. Now, it doesn't matter whether you want to make the choice or not. If there are only 3,000, um, say, buckets of coal and we've used them all, then you can try to choose to get more coal all you want. There isn't any, okay? That, the difference that's the now, problem. Right. The problem now, is the who, difference, get, who gets the coal and who doesn't. That's the problem with the, well, with the Venus project the way, without money. Right. Well, that's the problem with the capitalist system, too. The difference well, is, no. is that the capitalist system doesn't give a damn if the vast majority of the people don't get any coal. Okay. The Venus Project system actually would do the otherwise. Okay. It's the same thing like you look at the oil companies creating artificial scarcity of oil and ensuring that no other viable options other than gasoline is empowering our economy because gasoline really powers our economy. I'm sure you know that. Okay. So it, that's an example of how that system corrupts things. There isn't any reason for any of us to be using gasoline in our cars right now. But the reason that we have is that that is currently profitable for a select few people who get to live high on the hog while the rest of us get to hopefully get some scraps from their table. Okay? That isn't true for everybody. That might sound overdramatic to you because, like I said, I'm sure my situation is probably a lot worse than yours. But what I'm getting at is, is that I've been rich and I've been poor. Okay? I've hung out with a lot of rich people. Um, because some of my family is extremely rich, actually. One of my grandmothers owns the majority of the um, orange industry in California, or did. Okay, and they look at people like who, like they're not human beings. Like, you know, if you're not making as much money as they are, it's like you're subhuman. They don't even consider well, you people. They, okay, you think about that mentality. Like that. Well, I don't know about that. Okay, I've only met a few that are. And honestly, there is something morally, morally wrong to me about anybody who can live like that while there's somebody on the earth who's starving. The entire notion, I mean, it's like you don't see it sitting in your face, but the fact is, is that they go out of their way not to see it in their face. They give a little bit of money to charity, but the fact of the matter is, is like, let's just imagine this, okay? We're all sitting in a table, and we're eating the best prime rib or whatever our favorite food is, and there's a starving child sitting in the room, how are we going to react to that? Now, if we just decided to throw the starving child a couple of scraps from our table, are we doing anything moral at that point? Is that really a charitable action? You know, did we solve the problem? Absolutely well, I, not. I, well, I would think that the rich person might take the tact that, look, um, no one threw scraps of food at me, and I made something of myself. Sure, I'm willing to help you out, but at some point, you've got to go up, you know, you've got to get up off your feet, and make things happen for yourself, you know. I, I and if they're it, not the in a position to do that, uh, you get you, you you make the changes necessary. I mean, if, if your life and is if on the line, if if your life is on the line, you can. I mean, this is a world of great abundance. You know, if, if I have a lot of money, it doesn't. My, if I make a million dollars this year, you know, that doesn't make someone else in some other continent poorer because I'm making more money. I'm just happen to do you know better for myself. Uh, you know, uh, some people work harder than others. Uh, some people are obviously luckier than others. But, but, but getting back to the point with the hydroponic farms, in today's system, you would have to come, you would have to round up a million dollars. Let's say it costs a million dollars to build a, a hydroponic farm. You would have to round up a million dollars to go and build that hydroponic farm. In a Venus project, you would have to round up a million dollars worth of resources. So it's, it's, it's the same thing. So that's, that's what I'm saying. So how, well, it's not the same you, thing, but... 
Let me explain why it's not the same. Okay. okay, first of all, the resources are acquired as resources and not as a means by which someone else is making more money because they sold them to me. Okay, okay. that's a huge matter of efficiency right there. Second of all, okay. But if you go to the shop that makes the, the aluminum, whatever it is, you know, the aluminum trays, right. the hydroponic system, and there are 100, you know, aluminum trays, and there are 200 orders in the system, who determines who gets what? That, that's the problem. Well, at this point, who determines what gets what is essentially who is lucky enough to be in a position to make money. Um, in the system that we're talking about, things will be looked at, and essentially one of the major differences is this, okay? One of the things that Jacques Fresco brings up is, like, what happened when we run out of resources? When Nazi Germany ran out of rubber because we basically embargoed them so they couldn't have any, they made synthetic rubber. Okay. Now, in a monetary system, the very creation of synthetic rubber is a threat to the rubber industry, so therefore they'd go out of their way to ensure that that technology never saw the light of day, okay? And they do that all the time. They, that's, that's, okay. that's, that's, that's conspiracy talk. I mean, because if I wanted to, if I found a way to make myself money by creating a synthetic rubber, how is the rubber industry, what, are they going to show up with bats and say, you put out that rubber, we're going to... You know, doing Ask all the people who sold their patents for engines that are superior to the internal combustion engine how much well, money they got paid for that. And, and it's right. like, but look you, at mom you, and pop stores that get closed down by Walmart. I mean, it's it's not necessarily that it's people going with going out there with clubs, but it's that people who yield certain amount of power, who have more right. amount of money or have more leeway with politicians, what they their product is the end result because they they yield that power. Yes. So, yeah, but that's, that's so the rubber industry thing, might I not mm-hmm. Walmart put Walmart putting a Walmart putting a mom and pop store out of business. I mean, listen, it sucks to be unemployed, but for the consumer, for the productive economy, that's a good thing because Walmart's going to provide those, you know, products cheaper. So we're, everyone is much better off. If we relied on... Well, first you have to define for me who is everyone and define for me better. Because to me, everyone is going to be better off. The mom, the mom and pop aren't going to be better off. Their family is not going to be better off. The child no, labor but, that is being used to, to make those products for, for Walmart, they're not going to be better off. See, yeah, see the value Actually, system... They, they all are. No, they're not. Oh. See, see the the value system the value system that you're appro- the value system that you're approaching this entire thing from is based on the current system. Your value system is very much based on the monetary system. Well, the value well, system Walmart, of the Venus Project. When Walmart comes into a neighborhood and puts out a mom and pop store, they're only putting them out because they're able to provide the goods that they sell at a better price. Right, so no and what did they do to produce so those 20, goods? So the 20, what did they do? Uh, what did they do to produce those goods? How many yeah, people 20, got put out of work 20, to produce those goods? The 20,000 people that now become customers of Walmart are all better off. Yeah, the two people that own the mom and pop have to find another job, but the 20,000 people—that's improvement. That's an, that's an efficiency well, in the economy. You're, you're looking and at it. That's the improvement at those. Hold on a second, guys. You're, you're looking at only those two, the, the, the mom and pop in general. You're not looking at the fact that in order to produce the products that was necessary for them to put those people out of business, they essentially do it on slave labor, okay? That's well, really what it amounts to. That's how those people live, okay? No, and not, it, no, 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 wait, wait. First of all, you're talking about... You don't think that's hurting? 
You're talking about them purchasing products from countries that have uh, an, uh, a, a much smaller economy, so the people relative to the U.S. get paid a lot less. But the money that they get paid, when Walmart puts an order to China for them to build toys for $0.10, cents, that $0.10 right. cents that that worker is getting is twice the amount that they were getting working some field, you know, picking corn. I mean, that's an improvement over their life. Have you, you ever – an improvement really, in your life. I mean, have you investigated what, like, the conditions have, for right? working out really are in those countries? I, I have. Yeah, it's not just a money thing. It's, it's, it's an environment thing. It's not just I, that, yeah, they might be making I don't know how. I mean, it's like obviously we have different information. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but no, I, we, <laughs> all the information that I've seen from people who went over there to go look at it themselves, yeah, and every now and then you run into a situation that's slightly better, but in most cases you're dealing with people who are happy to accept the slave labor situation because it's slightly better than the starving to death situation they had before they showed up. Yeah, so isn't that an improvement? <laughs> That's not an improvement that in any way, in any way, to me anyway, implies that somebody's doing something that's okay or moral or whoa, 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 wait, good wait, wait, for wait, the if, wait, if, wait, if, if, you're, if you're making a dollar a day and I say to you, hey, listen, mm-hmm. if you want, I'll pay you $2 a day, I'm treating you like a slave, that's, I'm not helping you out? How is that not uh, helping you out? Well, at, I, at basically I'm obligated at the point, to make you rich? <laughs> at, at right, the, no, no, you're not obligated. Of course not. Right, go back to your dollar a day then, right? I mean, how, I mean it would be an improvement for right, people. You know, just go back to starving if you don't want to work for a little bit better than starving. That that's completely moral. I, I uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 more than what other companies are doing. I mean, when a oh, big okay. rich when a big rich multinational company goes into a poor, desolate country where people are starving to death and offers them jobs so that they get a piece of the economic pie, you know, on the other side of the globe. That's helping them. I mean, that's not making their lives worse. That's helping them. No, I mean, if they didn't show up, if they didn't show up, they would be stopping. I mean, how is that not an improvement? So it's it's okay that we give them just a little bit. But this goes back to the starving child in the room while we're all eating prime rib. Yeah, yeah. it's a situation, but I don't really, I can't really say that that's. It's like yeah. how we go to sleep at night as well. I'm glad that I sent, gave him like you know a cubic centimeter of my steak. I feel well, better it, now. It, well, it's a lot better than giving it to the. It's a lot better than giving it to the mom and pop who's not giving them any jobs at all and letting them starve. That's my. Point. Sir, you're a great spokesman for this this current capitalist monetary well, system. No, I mean, well, I don't think you're going to sell it. Well, I don't no, think no, no, you're going to no, sell wait, it to any of the three of us that you're talking with. But you well, know, well, you first, you well, are programmed. Well, I, I will say that. Well, no, but, but you guys. Are poor. I mean, you you, you can't but, tell me that I'm not helping someone out if I pay someone. A dollar a day. I disagree. I disagree. It's the same way. It's the same way that um, somebody who works at alcohol. Can I finish my? Can I finish my statement? It's, and I will let you Walmart's go. Re- it's Walmart's responsibility to pay everyone throughout the entire world. No, but it is. No. It is any human being's okay. responsibility to take into account the welfare of every other human being. Yeah, and if they can do something to help it out, I think that doing something would make someone a human being in that sense. Okay, so you got and, and how much have you sent to the poor people in China, both of you guys? I, I don't. If you knew how poor I probably, was, probably, you'd say like, they're, they're probably better off than I am. So I don't know what you're asking me to do. Do you want me to go get oh, wow. credit cards well, so I'll, I can take out money, to give to them, <laughs> and then and then that would put the credit card companies in bad business and, and hurt ten people? Do you want me to go steal from somebody and then send it to China so I'll hurt somebody to help somebody? I mean, I don't know what you want me to do. The no, I just want. I just want to point out. I just want to. 
you know, I just wanted to point out that you guys probably aren't in the position who aren't giving these people anything to criticize some company who is. I, listen, I'm to defend Walmart. Not in the position I'm to criticize somebody for making inhuman decisions? No, you're not, you're not in a position. To, you who hasn't given a dime to these people are not in, in a position to criticize someone who is giving them, but they're not giving them enough to your standards. I, I, to me, Hold on. The only reason they're giving them a dime, though, is to make their own money. They're, see, the, you, you yeah, phrase guess it in what? the sense that, that, off, they're, no? that they're helping these people. They're not, there is no motive in it at whatsoever to help anyone. What they're doing is what is the cost-benefit analysis? What is the absolute least amount of good I can do in order to make the most amount of profit and the least right. amount of work that these companies can do is they can go and hire child labor, which if you, if you really research this, you'll really find out that it is very much slave labor. I mean, that's what it is. Sure, they pay these people a bit more, but the conditions in which these people work are abhorrent. But these companies right, make... They make billions and billions of dollars, and then, pe and then people can, can turn around like you and say, well, at least it's better than those people not starving. While we're at it, no, wait, I got a great idea. Just real quick. Okay, this will work great because it, it worked in the past. You know, there were a lot of starving people in Africa when we decided to institute slavery. I think we should go back to doing, the, doing those people a favor by giving them exactly what they need to survive and nothing else so I can live on a big, fat plantation down south. You know, this is an awesome Tuesday. system. Thank you for selling me. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> right. I'm doing yeah, them a I, favor. Right. I, 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 agree that, I agree that slavery is bad. To, but to equate Walmart uh, giving these people a voluntary job that doubles their income to the same thing as uh, slavery the of the voluntary is, is job. ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous. And for you to, you know, for you people, although you may not be employed, either of you, if you go down to, uh, I'm sure you're living a lot better than someone living out in some hut, some dirty hut, and you're saying, For the moment. you know, you don't want, you don't want Walmart there in uh, doubling the standard of living of these people. I mean, I think it's a little absurd. It's a temporary. You might, might want to get off your, you you want to get off your high horse maybe and be a little bit more sympathetic. No, I'm not on a high horse. The fact that there are people who don't have the kind of opportunities and options that you do to sit back and say, oh, you only want to give me a dollar a day? That's not good enough. Give me $10 a day. I, I, really I, I, really I would say your knowledge of what our opportunities are is probably rather limited. You think you're as bad off as someone living in, uh, you know, the, the India in a hut? I'm you getting there, you, actually. Can, can I really quickly break in? As interesting as the discussion is, uh, I would like to give our caller a, a really small part of, of economics and to be honest, this is, this is part of microeconomics, but if you take the system as a whole and you're talking about the consumption and the, and the reward that people in these countries are, 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 are being given, but I remember Collar, and this is a long time ago, uh, because this has been a very long conversation, making a remark about the economy, it's about producing goods and selling them. But this is not a system that can... Uh, persist because economy is based and the only people who who believe it is is that economy is based on expansion and making the market larger and larger and larger until you have a number that is not possible on the finite world. So when we're talking about these issues and like I said it's an interesting discussion but if you take the picture as as a big picture and look at the whole concept as a whole. It's not sustainable in any way. So even if you are compensating people in other countries 
with the minimal wages you can offer them, and I think it's criminal as well. I really agree. But well, uh, aside from the issue of it being criminal, it can't sustain itself. It's just a matter of time before it can't work. That much is being proven because essentially, when you drag what they what they don't understand is they're they're essentially eating their own tail. Okay, they're basically eating themselves because when they when they basically drag down the 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 lifestyle of the of the labor people, okay, which now don't get me wrong, there there's been some corruption on the labor side too. Okay. The the labor unions are out out of the out of control most of the time. But okay, if you drag down their lifestyle then nobody's buying any products. Okay. This this is what happens when Walmart comes into a into into an area. Yeah, there's a little bit of benefit for a while. Okay. Then the employment starts to drag out because essentially companies like Walmart depend on goods that they get from places where the standard of living for labor is so low that at that point, anybody locally runs into the same problem. We don't even manufacture blue jeans in the United States, something that we were known for forever. We haven't been manufacturing blue jeans here for like, I think like six years. Okay. Um, you know, Disney fired all of their American animators. All of Disney cartoons are made in India now. And that will only go on as long as that's cheaper. Okay. And this is the reason why it becomes a problem is when the attitude is, well, it's not my problem, you know, it's not my job to, you know, to employ you. Eventually, this is actually one of the things that happened to the Roman economy. One of the major reasons that Caesar was assassinated actually had nothing, they called him a tyrant, but remember who writes, you know, who writes the history books. I'm not saying Caesar was an angel. I mean, he was still a Roman emperor. But the point is, is that he at one point passed a law to force all Roman businesses to employ 60% of their workforce had to be actual citizens okay, people that they had to pay a fair wage, that's what got him killed because he was essentially trying to fix the Roman economy so that the average Roman could still get a job because what was happening is, is all the rich people were like, well, that's not my problem. I'm just going to go buy slaves and it, who cares who it puts out of work, you know, and slaves are great. I only have to give them a place to sleep on some straw and throw them some food every now and then and, you know, they're cheap. I can just buy more or hell, I'll even breed them. You know, this is the attitude that I'm worried about that's going to come out of all of this. It's because the, well, the inhumanity that goes into that system, when you, if, you don't think, if you think that's really far off, I want you to think for a moment what goes through the mind of a corporate executive when he lays off, say, 300,000 people just in time for the holidays and ruins Christmases for all of those people and their families because he wants to buy another yacht. Okay? The attitude, that's the inherent corruption that is, it is getting bigger. It's not getting smaller. Okay? And when you have a money system and a means by which to corner the resources in that way, then you will always have this problem. And it, it's not just in capitalism. In communism, look at Kim Jong-il. Okay? Kim Jong-il is an excellent example. We supposedly are supposed to be all trying to equitably give out our resources. The average North Korean doesn't even have electricity. Kim Jong-il and his inner circle live like kings. Okay? These systems all have one thing in common. They try to essentially, you know, move the resources around, claiming that they're going to use money to do it. The reason for no money at that point is because of the fact that the medium of exchange needs to be as simple as everybody needs this much. Let's do our best to have it. Let's use technology to make it so that these shortages don't happen. And when these shortages do happen, rather than using them as, an, as a means by which to exploit other people by charging them more for something, rather than just finding a way to replace the item, that's what's going to create, the, the, that's what's going to create what we're talking about. That's where we're coming from. But how, that, but how would you determine? How would you determine? We need to create, you know, 
produce more radios or more microwave ovens or more cookies. Well, um, that gets determined. That gets determined by essentially the demand of the individual. You put in an order for one and you get one, or you go to a distribution center and you pick one up. Okay, now if, if you're not now, using the one, it's already in an already established dwelling. Because the idea also is that in many cases, it's kind of like the world becomes a big hotel. You know, in most places, you can still have your own dwellings, but most places would actually be communal. You would just, when you were traveling or studying or doing the things that you do in a Venus Project Society, entertain yourself. In most cases, a lot of those things will be provided for you in a communal situation where all of them have been produced using the best possible resources and the best possible designs. Okay. Right, so in many if, cases, you don't those things. If, if there's no price tag and everyone just puts in the order, um, uh, to me, I, I think that everyone will go online and it's Christmas, you know, every day of the year. Um, and I think that the orders would amount to probably, you know, 100 times, you know, our current productive capacity. So at some point you need to decide you can get the computer, but you can't. You can get the poster, but you can't. So that's what I'm saying. So how do you make those decisions? You can't just fulfill every order. We don't have the productive capacity to do that. Well, yeah, and one of the reasons that we don't is because of the fact that in order, if you created things in abundance to that level, it wouldn't be, okay, it wouldn't be possible. You see, this is the point that kind of, you know, that collapses on itself, is that you're suggesting that I want to have a capitalist system because then I have the choice of what I want, okay? I don't want then a you're telling system. Me, I think capitalism oh, is terrible. Oh, okay. Well, what, what system do you advocate? I advocate exactly what the Venus Project advocates, but my problem, I want, uh, to me, the best system for this, the purpose of the economy is not jobs, it's not business, it's not profit, it's to provide goods and services of value to people, and I think we should employ science and technology to deliver them, but I also understand that people have unlimited wants, and we only have a finite ability to deliver those products. So what I'm saying I just, is we, I, need a, we need a system that um, that enables that, that that where the power is in my hand, not in some bureaucrat's hands who's going to decide who gets what. So when we don't have money, when you well we don't have a voucher, when we don't have a thing where I can say this is what I want, then someone else is going to make that decision, and that's you know North Korea, that's Russia, you know that's uh, pre-capitalist China. You know, that's a system where the, the, the drawbacks, I think, will far outweigh the drawbacks of our current capitalist system. Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. First of all, I disagree with your statement that people have unlimited wants. I think that that is something that is, you, you have that idea based on your experiences, based on your experiences in life. Now, wait, wait, I also... Wait if, you, wait, if you gave every... If you took the price tag off of everything today and you said mm -hmm. anything that anyone wants, if they want it, they can go out and get it. You know, we'll set up a website, let's say, on Amazon.com. You can place your order. You're telling me that the orders that people place won't increase under our current level of orders? I mean, no, I, I mean, will it, for so, some, will it for some people? Absolutely. Will it for everyone? No. For instance, okay, I, have, but, I have an aunt. But at the end of the day, I, I when just, you add it all up, isn't it going to be a significant factor above what our current number of orders are today? I don't know. I don't know. I, I would, can't say yes and I can't say no. It's impossible to know because it, that's all based on speculation. I'm just saying that a general statement that you made that 
people have unlimited wants. I don't believe for my life and for the people that I know and the people that I've had experiences with, that's an untrue statement. I know very wealthy people who live very minimal life, and that's their choice. That's what they want to do. And I still think that when it comes down to it, the value system that you are applying to something like the Venus Project and a resource-based system is a value system that is very much rooted in, in capitalism and in the system that we're currently in. Because this idea, I agree with you, that there are a lot of people who want, 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 want. If they could get it for free, they would go take a hundred of them. But I think if we lived in a world where the, where the entire foundation of the system is based on the intelligent management of the Earth's resources, that's what it's all about, the intelligent management, I don't think a decent human being would say, I want five televisions. It's like people who were driving Hummers when the gas was at the, its highest amount of time. People started telling I live in L.A. People started selling their Hummers, getting rid of their big cars because they were so embarrassed and ashamed to have these things when, when it was so unreasonable. Now, take that to a, to a global level with everything where if you have – if you get on Amazon and you order a thousand different products of some sort, that means there's 999 other people who can't get it. I just think that the value system is going to be one where you would say, why would I want a thousand when I only actually need one? Okay, but I think, though, that if we were to rationally try and predict as scientists, okay, to say would the orders go up or would the orders go down, I think, it, I think the, the safe bet is on orders going up. And, and I think In current, with, the values, with the values of today, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. I don't think the value system will have to change. I, I don't think the value system will have to change. I, Oh, well, then, then you can't actually support, you can't actually be, uh, in order for the Venus Project to actually be a reality, the value system must change. So right, advocating for something. The value right. systems are indirectly affected by the environment. The environment is what creates the value system. The reason that you might think that there would be any benefit to having 100 televisions or whatever number we're using at the no, moment no, no, is because of the fact. Okay, good, not 100. But the reason why some people would do that, 50. No. okay, <laughs> Um, is because of the fact that right now that would mean something. The funny thing is, is that as I run over that scenario you're talking about in my head, the first thing that comes into my mind is that the guy who goes into the distribution center and walks out with 100 televisions, what was his motivation? Well, he was probably motivated by selling them. And then he gets well, out but, into the parking lot and he's like, wait a minute, what am I going to do with these things? It, but wait, wait, I don't wait, need these things. Let's think this through reasonably. How often of do course. people buy TVs? How often do people buy TVs today? Not very once every often. five years, once every five years, let's say. I don't know what it is. Let's, can we go with that? Is that a safe assumption? Once every uh, years? Yeah. Yeah, I, I bought years. one television in the last four years. Okay, so let's say once every five years. So you're saying, will people walk in into a store and want 100 TVs? I'm saying, no, that's not going to happen. We all understand that's not going to happen. But let's say instead of someone now wanting one TV every five years, they want two TVs every five years. If that's the case, then the production of TVs just doubles. And I think it's going to be a lot more than just two TVs a year. And I think once you extend that, not to just Why? TVs, but to... Why do you think that? Just to, because people want stuff. I mean, people, people value things. People want stuff. Do people want more than they actually need? Do you want more than you yeah, actually absolutely. need? Absolutely. And do you think and do you think that that is a value system that is completely based on the experiences in your life and your own conditioning? Do you yeah, think I, that I, everyone I, across I think, the globe wants more than they need? Yes, and I think that wealth is a good thing. Oh, you I, do? I think wealth is, yeah, I think wealth is a positive thing. I think I think that's progress. I think that um, I, I'm not saying you know me making a hundred million dollars a year and someone starving in a cave is a good thing, but I'm saying well. 
an economy that produces things of value that improve our lives, that progresses forward, mm-hmm. technology to, to improve right. our lives. Those are all things that help us. I'd much rather live in a society uh, like the United States where I do have access to plasma TVs, computers, an in-ground pool, a car, a new kitchen, than in North Korea where I don't have electricity. To me, I think that's... Well, we don't like North Korea or the United States, but largely because of the fact that I don't have access to a plasma television. There's absolutely nothing I could do in the next foreseeable future to get a plasma television. Right, but wouldn't you think that's because... but, but, I mean, are we advocating a society where it's more minimalist? I mean, is that, is that what Venus is advocating? Well, not necessarily. It, it's more of a point of that in many cases the reason why people want all of these things is because of the fact that they've been conditioned to think that that somehow makes them better people. As I said previously, we're getting a little circular here, but you get the idea. Now, it doesn't well, mean – but, like but don't people buy TVs because they, they want to watch TV shows and movies and – in some cases, that's true, but I remember my friend buying a ridiculous um, oversized television just because he wanted to be able to show it off to people. There's also, like, the issue of showing off to girls that, you know, a lot of my friends had. You know, they want to take you over to their pad and where they got this big TV and they're driving a Maserati. Well, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because some girls appreciate that. You know, that's an example, actually, of kind of like the, the primal nature of all of it, and it gets even more dangerous because now we're smarter in the way that we're stupid. Okay, and that we, and one of the things about production that they bring up in the, in the orientation guide is that we overproduce so many things. Like we have like a billion companies producing televisions that could be producing something else. This is one of the reasons why I, I try to bring up to people that the scarcity that they think is going to happen is essentially in many cases it's a straw man. They erect the straw man argument that is essentially this extreme of the man who wants 100 televisions. Okay. And then they expect us to answer for what's going to happen in the event that that happens. Well, first of all, I'm going to point out that companies such as Zenith, RCA, and the three billion whatever other companies that are developing televisions and reusing the same resources over and over again are not even going to exist. Okay? There's going to be one uh, entity making televisions, okay? and that entity is going to be able to produce the best quality televisions so, that nobody, so you don't need to keep rebuying them. Okay, so you get a lot more out of them. Okay, it, it's essentially, basically, the, the biggest thing that needs to be different, and this is one of the reasons why so people think that when Jacques Fresco talks, he goes on a lot of tangents. Something I recognized when I was talking about the Venus Project myself on Z-Day was that you can't talk about this without going off on tangents because there's so many things that are interrelated. Okay, right. in this instance, okay, when you're talking about a TV, you're not just talking about a TV in its normal sense. You're talking about all of the components. You're talking about um, all of the work that went into it and all this other crap that goes into it. What was the motive of the company to make it? Did they make it so that it was planned to be obsolete? Yes, they did. In fact, they do that a lot. That is something that is immensely rewarded, you know, in the technical world, okay? And, you know, in addition to all of that, you know, there's the benefit, you know, as I said, you know, advertising tells you that having a big TV is good, the music industry tells you this, you know, because they're essentially it's the same thing. I know, want, but I uh, want, I want a big TV because it's a better viewing experience. It's a better, it's a better. Now, that's a good motive to have. Bad. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't don't have that. Okay. Um, right, but, but, it, but, but, basically, but, but, if you just wanted the best TV, 
then we'd be okay. But, they, but the industry doesn't want that. The industry doesn't want you to have the best TV. They want you to have the most profitable TV. Okay? That, that's a huge difference in attitude. Okay? That has to be understood. Now we're talking about, now let me, let me get into why this is relevant. Okay? Is that the mentality changes so many things. Okay? It changes the fact that the television is being designed to be the absolute best television possible at the time, okay, using all the best resources, okay, designed to be recyclable, to be, you know, perhaps designed in such a way that it's easy for you to modify it to make new TVs better. Okay, take, for example, Macintosh. Macintosh is a computer company that it's really hard to work on their computers because you have to have Macintosh parts. They did right, that on purpose. Right. right, they did that on purpose, okay. PCs are a different matter, okay. You can get your parts from anywhere, and they're so much easier to modify and to work on. Now, there are benefits and negatives. A Macintosh computer, at least in my opinion, is usually more reliable, but at the same token, you end up buying another Mac in a few years because you have no choice. It's not like you can walk out and update your video card. Now, they've changed 